it might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the- I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I told you I'm in a hurry and you're taking up my time. We're talking, my hobby is stuffing things. And we're talking, ha, huh, you think I'm fruity, do you? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, I'll lick the stamps. <laughs> Boy, this movie is sexual without being sexual at all. Ah, uh, yeah, everyone. We are discussing, uh, possibly long overdue, Alfred Hitchcock's classic 1960 film. Uh, what some consider the, uh, the introduction of the world to the slasher subgenre, Psycho. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do love how we just resolutely refuse to do things in order. So it's like, yeah, let's start with Psycho 2, do Psycho 3, and then circle back to the OG. Honestly, I was kind of like, I think we're going to have to do Psycho 4 next year. Like, that's just going to have to be a thing. That's when I don't ever think I've actually seen in full. But mm-hmm. on my watch of this one, so I have actually seen Psycho quite a bit. Sure. I, hey, I'll just go into a personal anecdote here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, back when I we got the TV Guide still, and the TV Guide was an actual, like, magazine print thing that came to your house. Right. Does it still do that? I don't know. <laughs> but I remember being in middle school, and there was a screening of Psycho at, like, 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon on Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. And I was in a movie theater reading the TV Guide with my mother, and oh my I was like, Mom, can I please watch Psycho? And, of course, Psycho is an R-rated movie, and so... I was not allowed to watch it. And I remember her asking my dad, like, well, can he watch it? And my dad's like, I don't really think there's anything super R-rated in Psycho. <laughs> so yeah. the agreement was that I could watch it with my dad. And I taped it, uh, cutting out all the commercials. And I had a taped copy of Psycho on my VHS with edited versions of Deep Blue Sea and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And I hmm. spent many a weekend triple featuring these three movies. <laughs> That is an unconventional triple feature, sir. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of my headspace. Do you remember the first time you saw Psycho, Joe? Oh, gosh. I think my mom might have showed it to me for Halloween, but I wasn't particularly young. I don't have strong memories of it. But yeah, like you, I feel like I've seen this. Oh, God, it's got to be at least a dozen times. Yeah. Talked about it a ton in film school because, yep. of course, you know, there's so many different readings, but also you can talk about the editing. You can talk about the way Hitchcock developed, like, new ways to shoot things, Herman's score, just like everything about this movie is yeah you said it it's a classic right like there's a reason why it has stood the test of time and then of course you and i are coming in to help re-problematize it as <laughs> many queer people have over the years it's yeah it's interesting I, I i this is the first time i'd seen this movie probably since my college days because okay you know i, th- I think once i started like getting into the world of horror journalism i was kind of like you know i've seen psycho a lot sure i've done it i don't need to do it again exactly so i was uh, simultaneously like not looking forward to this rewatch but also looking forward to it to see how my feelings had changed if at all but mm-hmm. i find I found that, I don't know, I was paying a lot more attention to just, like, the dialogue and little character moments. And, of course, a Mm -hmm. lot of the filmmaking techniques that I wasn't, like, super knowledgeable about, you know, 10, 15 years ago. 
Sure. Yeah. No, I, like you, had a very similar reaction specifically to the performances. Like some of the quieter moments between Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins. I'm yep. just like, my God, their acting is so fucking good in this movie. Well, that's the thing. Janet Lee got an Oscar nomination for this and she won the Golden Globe. And I think at first, like, if you're just thinking about it, you're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, she's fine. But like, I mean, come on. Like, we all remember Psycho because of the shower scene. And mm-hmm. honestly, yeah, watching this time, I was like, oh, I love Marion Crane as a character. 100%. I think she is so wonderful. And yeah, Lee plays her to perfection. And I will say, having literally, literally just rewatched Gus Van Sant's remake, oh, it actually did make me appreciate both. Well, I sorry. It made me appreciate Anthony Perkins' portrayal a lot more. I do mm-hmm. think that Vince Vaughn is miscast in that remake. However, yes. I will Anne go Hesh to, is great. I, was, I, was, I will go to bat for Anne Hesh in that remake. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and I think that even though Gus Van Sant is doing a shot-for-shot shot remake, I do think it's very interesting. I don't know. Put a pin in that one yeah. because mm-hmm. the film turns 25 in December. So... <laughs> yeah, we can discuss the remake at a certain point. But yeah, obviously, this is not about the remake. It is about the original film, everyone. Right. Okay, so 1960. Take us back, Trey. Set the stage. I know. Okay, so yes. Um, Psycho, everyone, in case you didn't know, is based on Robert Bloch's 1959 novel of the same name, which is, of course, loosely inspired by the case of convicted Wisconsin murderer and grave robber Ed Game. Mm-hmm course if that name sounds familiar to you it's probably because you've listened to our episode on the silence of the lambs or you've seen bonus features on a dvd of the texas chainsaw massacre there we go yeah obviously it's kind of wild that i think there is at least one actual movie dedicated to the van but it is wild to me how many fiction films he has inspired in terms of his supposed villainy like we we have turned this man into a literal boogeyman across horror films for Mm -hmm. decades. But I still feel like people took the wrong lesson from him in much the same way that people took the wrong lesson from both this movie as well as Silence of the Lambs. I'm honestly kind of in agreement with you here. And you're right. You know, we got that Dahmer show last year. We've had movies about Dahmer. We had movies about Gacy. We've had movies about uh, uh, Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. I, I can't think of like a really famous Ed Gein movie. It's all these films that took inspiration from his crimes. Yeah. And obviously, the details are salacious. If people want Mm -hmm. to go and look it up, you know, he had a very tumultuous relationship with his mother, who was very domineering. It's rumored that he killed his older brother in a kind of Cain and Abel thing when the older brother was about to go and get married. And he was very worried about leaving Ed with his mother. There's there's all of these things. And then, of course, yeah, all the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff comes in where we've got like nipple lamps and other weird things because he was making a lady suit, which is where the silence of the lambs comes in but i think the big takeaway is just we're fascinated by this idea of a man who was dominated by his mother and then kind of taxidermied her to keep her alive but then we turn it into as we are apt to do particularly in our current political moment oh it's a scary trans thing yes and we i'm sure we'll have plenty to say about that i i actually do think that norman bates is out of all the films we've just mentioned i think Mm -hmm. that he is the closest like the closest to a gain in actuality okay i mean here's the thing there's a certain amount of empathy particularly i think as written in the screenplay and then as developed in perkins performance like 
I think there's a very easy way of looking at Psycho and seeing this character is not a villain. He is pathetic. He is sad. He's lonely. And I think if you can overlook some of the gorier details of Ed Gaines' real life, you could see, oh, maybe this is a, a man who was also to a certain extent, a victim, while also maybe a bit of a monster. Well, and the thing is, I mean, like it's right there in the title, Joe. It's Psycho. He's psychotic. Right. And so, like, instead of going to jail, I mean, of course, we won't learn this now. We will learn this in Psycho 2, 22 years later. Mm. But, but yeah, Norman Bates goes to an institution. He doesn't go to jail because he right. he's legally insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I, what I actually find the most fascinating, though, is, you know, um, Ed Gein's crimes were discovered in 1957, a mere two years before this book was written. So yeah. Psycho the Novel, which admittedly is a very slim book, it looks like it's just shy of 200 pages. It's mm. very ripped from the headlines. Yes. <laughs> I saw someone describe it as an airport paperback, and I thought, oh, okay, that's probably apt, but also a little bit damning. Yeah. Well, and funnily enough, though, Ed Gein lived only 40 miles, or for you, 64 kilometers, from <laughs> Robert Block. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, there was, I'm sure, like, where he lived, like, it was the talk of the town also, I think. Right. Funnily enough, so between the novel's publication and the film's release um, is when the Clutter family were murdered in uh, in Kansas, you know, the In Cold Blood murders. So, obviously, True crime didn't really have a name, I don't think, at this point, but it was very much, oh, these were cases that shocked a nation. Right. Yeah. And folks, we we have a bit of a strained relationship, maybe that's the term, with regard to true crime. I mean... I think it's interesting to maybe offer some gentle context for how Block ended up writing the novel and then how the novel becomes the film. But at the end of the day, I'm hesitant to look at Psycho as an adaptation of Ed Gein's life or something Mm -hmm. like it really feels, you know, it's ripped from the headlines for the book. And then it turns into something sensational that Alfred Hitchcock reads on a plane. And he's like, hey, (laughs) somebody get me the rights for that, because I think I can make a really twisty thriller out of this. Well, and and truthfully, Hitchcock was more he was more interested in Block's narrative style because the novel's made up of 17 chapters. Uh, Marion or Mary Crane in the book, um, they had to change her name for the film because a Mary Crane actually did live in Phoenix at the time. So they were like, let's avoid that. What he did was he would introduce a protagonist and kill them off. So he did this with two or three characters in the book. The first one being Mary Crane, who dies on the 25th page of the book. Okay. Anyway, that's right. (laughs) So, okay. So Peggy Robertson, Hitchcock's longtime assistant, uh, she read a positive review of the book and decided to show Hitchcock the book. She's like, hey, Hitch, uh, here's here's Psycho. (laughs) (laughs) But studio readers at Paramount had already rejected its premise for a film. Uh, Their official stance being that the book was, quote unquote, too repulsive and, I love this, impossible for films. Oh, okay. So they were already (laughs) thinking franchise potential. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so they were like, uh, nothing but another of your uh, of Hitchcock's star-studded mystery thrillers will suffice. And so around this same time, Hitchcock was about to do an Audrey Hepburn starring film uh, called No Bail for the Judge. But this fell through uh, because she became pregnant. Remember this, by the way. Okay. Hitchcock said, fuck you guys, and acquired the rights to the novel for $9,500. And to compare, because we'll be doing some inflation in this uh, episode, mm-hmm. this is about $100,000 today. 
Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty substantial amount of money. I think so, too. Um, I also want to point out that Henri-Georges Clouseau's 1955 film Les Diaboliques helped inspire Hitchcock to make Psycho because Clouseau is being called the French Hitchcock in the papers, and Les Diaboliques has a big twist at the end. So Ooh. Hitch was like, well, I'm the only Hitchcock. There is no French Hitchcock, and I want to do something <laughs> like that, too, and top it. <laughs> There's no one like me. Let me do the thing that the other person did, but do it better better because i'm better oh my god this man was such a narcissist if you want to hear more fun stories about hitchcock be sure to go back and listen to our other episodes on rope as well as rebecca yes but oh, also uh, go back and listen to our episode on lady Diabolique because that's a great movie it is indeed yeah and i think we actually give a shout out to this movie and say like hey i think this contributed to the filming of psycho it 100 percent did i think the only difference is that film doesn't have like a 45 minutes in twist right. <laughs> i mean would we call marion crane's death a twist or like a rug pull you know <sighs> i mean some people are going to use them interchangeable but yeah. yeah okay well paramount executives balked at hitchcock's proposal and refused to provide his usual usual budget in response hitchcock offered to film psycho quickly and for less than a million dollars and in black and white because if he shot it in color it would be quote unquote too gory right he also brought over his crew from the anthology television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And I really want to point out, Hitchcock's film before this was 1959's North by Northwest, which was shot in color and had a budget of $4.3 million. Yeah, this was interesting. I knew that he had strategically decided to focus on black and white, but I didn't realize that he was basically making a cheapy slasher film like this is essentially hitchcock making a b movie where he's got one final film that he needs to make for paramount before he shifts over to universal so he mm -hmm. says okay let me do a low budget horror film and what we get is what some people consider to be the first slasher film which is a genre that is defined by its speed its low budgets and it's kind of sensational content well, and that's the thing. I mean, and when we get to the reception, we'll talk about this some more. But, you know, a lot of the negative critiques were, oh, Hitchcock is slumming it. He's making right. a cheap, schlocky gore movie, which, again, it's funny. I know. Calling this a gore movie, which, and everyone, again, this, all of this was very shocking in 1960. Like, sure. By 2023 standards, obviously, I can see some people watch this and being like, wow, this is kind of boring. It's not really that surprising. And oh, go fuck yourself. I, yeah, 100%. But it's, I'm trying to think of a good comparison, right? That's like, um, like Hitchcock doing psycho is like martin scorsese making insert cheap slasher here i don't know <laughs> cape fear <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's a remake though <laughs> yeah it's fine i mean i think the the closest is how people were losing their mind at the transition from georgina campbell to justin long and barbarian oh yeah uh yeah that, that's yes very much very much psycho e so Paramount executives then rejected this cause-conscious approach, claiming that their sound stages were booked. But the industry was in a slump. So Hitchcock countered that he personally would finance the project and film it at Universal International using his Shamley Productions crew if Paramount would agree to distribute the film. Which, that mm. helped me out because I was really confused seeing the Paramount logo at the top of this film. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's very weird. I mean... There were a lot of deals back during the height of the Hollywood studio system. Yeah. Well, so in lieu of Hitchcock's $250,000 director's fee. Oh, my God. In 1960 money. Oh, I. Okay. So, oh, you know what? Lo, I want to I know what that is. <laughs> Sorry. One second. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Joe, that is a little over $2.5 million in 2023 money. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, he's a director working at the height of his craft. So in some ways, maybe that's a bargain. I feel like that's probably what we would see for a Michael Bay during his, you know, bad boys tenure or something like that. Sure. But, you know, it's okay. This might be a bit of a deep cut. Did you see the 2012 film Hitchcock starring Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock? I have not, no. So uh, I have seen it. Granted, I have not seen it since theaters. Um, It is an okay movie, but... That's what I heard, yeah. uh, Well, here's the thing. Like, it plays like a TV movie of these events, which is Mm. fine. It's just like you're cramming all this shit into a 98-minute runtime, and it just... A lot of it's very surface level. There's not really a lot of, um, like, insight in the film. But I will say it's worth a watch, if only because it's more about Hitchcock's relationship with his wife, Alma Revel, um, played mm. in that film by Helen Mirren. And it's about the making of Psycho and all, and how, like, yeah, he was being written about in the trades. Like, oh, Hitchcock kind of needs to uh, retire. He's too old in the game, which is really funny, considering his last movie, North by Northwest, was this enormous hit. Hmm. And I think one of the other interesting things is that relationship that he has with his wife, because, yeah, she was very much his collaborator. Like, she doesn't always get the credit, but basically, if she didn't like something, it didn't proceed. And she was an editor in her own right. So it's not like she was some, you know, fucking trophy wife or something where he was just like, oh, my wife who has no industry cred, whatever. So Alma was actually very, very important. And particularly in making aspects of this film, like there's anecdotes about everything that she contributed to the film. So I find it funny that people kind of try to sideline her, but then also there are all of these accusations about how misogynistic Hitchcock was and how he treated his blondes and his leading actors. And I don't know. I mean, he was a very complicated guy. Well, and but that's the thing, though. So I because, you know, reading about Alma Rebel, you, you, you I feel like comparisons to Daria Nicolodi are going to come up, right? You know, oh, it's a woman who like, she was also a script doctor. Like she would like tell him, like, this is what you need to do. This isn't going to work. Blah, blah, blah. Do this, do this, do this. Never credited. He always credited her, though. Like, maybe she didn't have her name in the credits of the film, but, like, he would always say, like, this is all thanks to Alma. Right. So, I I don't know. I just think it's very interesting. So, yes, uh, in lieu of that big director's fee, that 2.5 million 2023 director's fee, um, he's like, cool, I'm going to do a 60% stake in the film negative. And this combined offer was accepted, and he went ahead in spite of naysaying from producer Herbert Coleman and his Shamely Productions executive, Joan Harrison. Okay, so when it comes to writing this thing, James P. Kavanaugh, a writer on Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, wrote the first draft of the screenplay, which Hitchcock, uh, he thought it dragged and unsurprisingly read like a television short horror story. Sometimes you get what you pay for. Yeah, so he was advised to talk to up-and-coming screenwriter Joseph Stefano, who had worked only on one film before, uh, so he was a baby. But Hitchcock agreed to meet with him, and despite Stefano's inexperience, the meeting went well, and he was hired. And it should also be noted that Stefano's screenplay is the exact same one used in Gus Van Sant's remake. Right, yes. (laughs) Um, In terms of differences in the book, it's actually pretty straightforward adaptation, the big difference aren't in the plot points, though. It's more so in the characterization. So in the book, Norman Bates is unsympathetic. Um, he's middle-aged, he's overweight, he's a heavy drinker, and he's more overtly unstable to the point where it is a twist at the end that he's dressing up as his mother, but I don't mm-hmm. think this is maybe well as hidden of a twist. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Norman is also interested in spiritualism, the occult, and pornography, and that is made very clear in the book. Right. 
yeah, he he's basically just a very obvious bad guy. Very much so. Um, also, the film opens with him. It doesn't open with Marion. So it does seem like Marion is much more of a side character as opposed to being positioned as the de facto protagonist, which is, of course, the stroke of genius that Hitchcock and Stefano agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's Goyer. Uh, Marion gets uh, decapitated in the shower. Right. <laughs> okay, so as I said earlier, Hitchcock took most of his crew from his television series, um, including the cinematographer, set designer, script supervisor, and first AD. He hired regular collaborators Bernard Herman as the composer, George Tomasini as editor, and Saul Bass for the title design and the storyboarding of the shower scene. Now, remember Saul Bass's name. <laughs> yes, I shouldn't have any difficulty with that. <laughs> I, I know. Um, in all, the crew cost $62,000. There we go. Through the strength of his reputation, Hitchcock's first choice for Marion was Janet Lee, and he cast her for a quarter of her usual fee, paying only $25,000. Though, Janet Lee apparently owed Paramount one final film on her seven-year contract, which she had signed in 1953. This turned out to not be an issue anyway, because Janet Lee accepted this upon reading the script and saying, oh, I want to work with Hitchcock. Right. Yeah. It's one of those typical things where you'll do anything because you want to work with this person. I will say, so there is a 90 minute documentary, like a making of documentary on uh, pretty much any physical release of this film. Um, watch it because the most interesting parts of it are Janet Lee talking about making this film. She has a remarkable memory and is really like a fascinating interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched it too. And you're right. She's very, very candid and interesting. She's got some great insights. You know, she's obviously also just Janet Lee. She's very fun. <laughs> I was actually really sad that there's no Anthony Perkins. I, I guess I would have thought that we would have had archival footage of him talking about the film. But if they have it, they don't include it. I wonder if his estate prevents using archival footage like that. Mm, maybe. Maybe. Know. I'm just speculating. But um, yeah, I agree. I do also want to mention Vera Miles at this point, because you see, Miles was kind of coerced into doing this movie. <laughs> <laughs> she owed him. She, okay. Yeah, so Vera Miles signed a five-year personal contract with Hitchcock in 1957, and she was going to be his next it girl. She was going to be a successor to Grace Kelly. And two years prior, Hitchcock had directed Miles in the role of Ralph Meeker's emotionally troubled new bride in Revenge, the pilot episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She was going to be the lead in 1958's Vertigo. Um, mm-hmm. He designed this film as a showcase for Vera Miles. And after several production delays, she got pregnant, an event that would cost her the lead role, which would eventually yeah. go to Ken Novak. Yeah, Oof, that is a huge loss. I mean, Psycho ends up being Hitchcock's best known or most well-remembered film. But, I mean, losing the lead in Vertigo is... Ugh. Well, but that's the thing, though. So, Vert- and again, I, I, don't, I didn't realize this. Vertigo was not a financial or a critical success at the time. Oh, okay. And Hitchcock attributed a lot of that to Kim Novak being miscast. Like, he would just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Example Z of how Hitchcock doesn't treat his actresses well. Yeah, that's also a Hitchcock that I need to rewatch. I watched it in college and didn't quite see what all the hubbub was, but I feel like maybe now I might appreciate it more. Oh, yeah. No, it's a Stone Cold classic. Yeah. Anyway, but because of this, um, it is long believed that Hitchcock held a grudge against Vera Miles, essentially forcing her to play the smaller role of Lila Crane in Psycho as a contractual obligation. And 
Oh no, don't make me appear in your massively successful blockbuster. Well, and I will say, so in that Hitchcock movie, um, again, it's some of these like little moments that I really like because Jessica Biel plays Vera Miles and Scarlett Johansson plays Janet Lee. And oh, okay, right, I know, like you wouldn't think that. Um, no, they have a conversation that I, I remember that as being like one of the the high points of the film is like Vera Miles was like, hey, I'm choosing family over a career, but I'm coming back to this fucking stupid ass slasher movie. <laughs> but she's just talking to Janet about her relationship with Hitchcock, which I thought was really interesting. Right. Okay. But um, if you go back and listen to our episode on Psycho 2, I believe our guest Michael Verratti says that Miles reprising the role of Lila in Psycho 2 uh, was basically her... Making amends. Well, yeah, yeah, just doing it back on her own terms, you know? Right. And honestly, she's great in that movie. She sure is. But yeah, so Psycho was shot at a tight budget of $807,000, beginning on November 11th, 1959, ending on February 1st of 1960. And nearly the whole film was shot with a 50mm lens on a 35mm camera, except there was a a period of like a week when Hitchcock had had a cold, and so Alma stepped in to do some directing, and she shot some scenes with a 35mm lens, which is expressly against what Hitchcock was doing in this film. (laughs) Whoops. Well, and, you know, didn't Saul Bass infamously shoot the shower sequence, Trace? Okay, so yeah, that's everyone. (laughs) The thing with Saul Bass, so the thing is this, he storyboarded every shot of that shower sequence. And it was shot pretty much according to his storyboards. And so that's where it came from. But I think he was also telling people that he was directing it. But by all accounts, everyone's like, uh, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounded definitely like he was saying some sneaky, shady things. I imagine it was probably just, oh, you know, everything that works about that is thanks to my work doing the storyboards. But it's like, dude, that sequence took seven days to shoot. And if you weren't behind the camera, you didn't direct it. Well, what I can almost guarantee you happened is like he was at some cocktail party in the 60s and he said, oh, yeah, I dealt this shit. I might as well have directed right. that scene. But anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Perkins and Lee were given freedom to interpret their roles and improvise as long as it did not involve moving the camera. And that's also something I got from that that making of documentary, because Janet Lee talks about how a lot of actors have discussed not particularly liking working with Hitchcock because he's so technical that mm-hmm. it impedes on their craft because they like they, they can't make these like decisions on the fly. It's like, no, hit this mark, hit this mark, hit this mark. And I appreciated gently because she was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're some actors thought that was a hindrance on their performance. I just took it as a challenge as a way to evolve my performance. Yeah, it was interesting when she mentions that it occurred to me that that must not be the conventional way of doing it. And I realized, oh, that must mean that the actors choose when they're moving. And then the director or the the DP is like, okay, follow them or stay at this distance or, you know, shoot them in this kind of shot. And it was interesting. It, It challenged my way of thinking about how films are made because, yeah, Hitch was like, I'm going to do this. You need to modulate your performance so that you are yep. there when I need you to be there and so on. Well, and that's the thing. She said, you know, I do my job, you do yours. And we have to work together like that. And I don't think we can understate how innovative Hitchcock is with a lot of the technical aspects of this film. I mean, you know, we we said that Gus Van Sant's remake is a shot for shot remake, which is mostly true. But even the editor and the cinematographer and Van Sant himself on that film we're saying, well, you know, we try. We try to make it shot for shot, but there are some shots that we couldn't do because we could not figure out how Hitchcock did it and how he blocked the scene with the camera. 
Mm -hmm. And there's even certain technical limitations that you couldn't do in 1960. Like, I didn't realize that cameras didn't have automatic focus on them. So they had to manually adjust the camera to keep Janet Lee's eye in focus for the shower sequence. And it's like, oh, that's amazing i will say so i did check out that documentary 7852 which i think is really good but it's really only about the shower scene yes however if you're wondering well how can they make a 90 minute movie just about what three minutes of footage maybe Mm -hmm. it's illuminating like i think it really does make you appreciate the craft of filmmaking um even if it's you know i do feel like it's kind of slight overall okay yeah but before we get to the release, though, we have some issue with censorship and taboos, because um, in case y'all didn't know, showing a woman in a bra was very risque in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I prefer a slip. Thank you. So right from the opening, you know, with Sam and Marion showing his lovers in the same bed, Marion in a bra, the production code standards at the time, um, unmarried couples shown in the same bed would have been taboo. Right. Another issue was gender nonconformity, you know, uh... Perkins was allegedly gay. Um, Hitchcock had made rope, which if y'all go back and listen to our episode or you watch the movie, it deals with some very uh, latent homosexuality. Mm-hmm. We have issues with cross-dressing uh, uh, during the attempted murder of Lila. A lot of this was an issue with the censors, but because we don't actually see a lot of this, and even the word transvestite, which that right. is kind of a derogatory term right now. Well, it it was the word at the time, and we have since put it to pasture because it's not accurate. Well, and the thing is, because because at the time it was used to describe a mental disorder, mm-hmm. which we now know is, of course, not the case. Well, most of us know is not the case. <laughs> All the smart ones know it's not the case. Exactly. Yeah. During the shower scene, you know, there was an issue where um, uh, one of the censors thought they could see one of Janet Lee's breasts. Although, funnily enough, there is a shot where you can see her body doubles breasts out of focus in the background. You can see the shape of them, but they're so out of focus that you can't. I guess the censors just didn't give a shit by that point. <laughs> but but basically, when they were like, oh, we saw a tit, uh, Hitchcock goes, okay, I'll take it back and re-edit it. He held on to the print for a few days, didn't touch the fucker, and then sent it back and goes, all right, here you go. Here's the re-edited version. And they, they were fine with it. They approved it. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I mean, I think it's also a testament to the power of editing where you think you're seeing action in this shower sequence whether that's nudity or whether that's slice and dice and the reality is you were seeing none of that that's all just editing yeah honestly like you know we always talk about oh like people remember texas chainsaw massacres being super gory but it's not Mm -hmm. i think this shower scene is a really good example of like you're thinking you're seeing things but you are not seeing things correct that was how we analyzed it when we talked about it in film school a hundred percent oh you know what's funny is um i didn't watch psycho in film school because my teacher uh, my professor opted to show us instead peeping tom okay you know what great double bill very good double bill. everyone please go watch that and listen to our episode on it there we go Psycho has been rated and rebated several times over the years by the MPAA. Um, Upon its release, it received a certification stating that it was approved under the simple pass-fail system of the Hays Code. Uh, Later, when the MPAA switched to a voluntary letter rating system in 68, Psycho was one of a number of high-profile films to be retro-rated with an M, uh, suggested Mm. for mature audiences. Right. This remained the only rating the film received for 16 years, and according to the guidelines of the M... It was equivalent to the PG rating. Oh, okay. 
1984 amidst a controversy surrounding the levels of violence depicted in PG-rated films in the VCR era, the film was reclassified to its current rating of R. And I'm going to tell you right now, I take issue with this rating. This film does yeah. not need to be rated R. This is a That's PG-13 bullshit. at worst. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, no one says any kind of cuss words in this film. There's, there's no sex and nudity. No sex and nudity. The, 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 there's only a couple shots of blood, which, again, chocolate fucking syrup. Mm-hmm. It's wild to me that this is rated R still, but whatever. Yeah, no, I, again, I think that's a testament to the editing. People think there's more in this film than there actually is. Yeah, and I will say, even the remake, which I think it does earn it already because they add that masturbation scene. And there is oh, a, boy. there's an extra shot of Haish stumbling at the very end. And, like, basically you see her ass and like it just, like, kind of spreads as her leg spreads. Right. They had a shot of that in this film that they decided not to use. Yes, yeah. That was one of the objections that the censors, they, they knew it would get them into trouble. So they were just kind of like, all right, take it out. It's fine. Exactly. Promotion for this film was a little bit, I'm going to say, unorthodox. Um, Hitchcock forbade anyone from the cast from doing any like television, radio, print interviews um, because he didn't want them to reveal the plot of the film. I always think this is really funny because I'm like, well, can't people just go read the fucking book? Like, mm-hmm. Hitchcock's assistant got this at the airport. <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost as though he assumed people hadn't read this massively successful bestseller and or that they wouldn't equate it with the film of the same name he was making. Which apparently he was right. <laughs> yeah, no. I feel like he he was doing bait and switch things with other aspects of the film that I think was keeping people on their toes. So even if they did figure it out, he was saying, oh, well, it's not what you think because, you know, we're actively looking to cast someone to play Anthony Perkins' mother. So it's definitely not going to be Anthony Perkins in a costume. 100%. And maybe he's playing to the taboos of the time, right? No one would expect to see Anthony Perkins cross-dressing. Right. Or or even that Hitchcock would make a kind of lowbrow film like this. They probably thought he was going to class it up. Well, by today's standards, he did. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Uh, but yeah, even critics were not given private screenings. So yeah, uh, no critics got advanced screenings of this film. They were all in the theater opening day at 1030 screenings in that morning. But this contributed to bad reviews, did it not? That's what is believed. Okay. Um, Put a pin in that really quick before we get okay. finished this. So the trailer. Oh, this again. I love this. The trailer for the film. It's long as fuck. It's five minutes. It's, it's so long. And it's not. You don't even see footage from the film. You just have Hitchcock walking around the goddamn house, the motel, basically spoiling all the deaths in the film for you. The whole film. I remember I watched it. I think it might have been when we were prepping for our episode about trailers for Patreon. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like. I hate this trailer. It is so long. It gives everything away. It also doesn't really give you a taste of the film because it's only Hitchcock because they filmed it after they had wrapped the movie. They just stayed on an extra day. And I mean, honestly, the goal and narcissism of this man to be like, you know what? I'm going to cut a trailer. It's just going to be me. <laughs> it's it's kind of what also the tone. He's very droll, which I, I oh, get he that, is. Yeah, that's Hitchcock's like his it's a shtick. It's a thing. Everyone it knows is. it. But it doesn't match the tone of this film. <laughs> no, it makes it seem like it's going to be kind of a jokey movie as a result. A hundred percent. Yeah, I would have expected it from someone like William Castle. Yes, yes. It felt, it feels very, which I guess by this time, though, I mean, he was making movies in the 50s, but he, he honestly, he probably has Psycho to thank for a lot of his 60s work. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, as I said earlier, Paramount distributed Psycho, but four years later, Hitchcock sold his stock in Shamley to Universal's parent company, MCA, and his remaining six films were made at and distributed by Universal Pictures. Another four years after that, Paramount sold all Psycho rights to Universal, which is why the remake is just, I guess all the sequels too, are just Universal. <laughs> right. God, I wonder if they were hard up for cash or they probably thought, you know what, we haven't moved forward on a Psycho 2, so we're probably not going to. That's fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, Universal in 1982 is like, <laughs> 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 So Psycho was released on June 16th, 1960. I'm sorry. It had its first screening, like public screening at the DeMille Theater and the Baronet Theater in New York City. It was the first film sold in the U.S. on the basis that no one would be admitted to the theater after the film had started. And this is great. I love this. This also feels very William castle mm -hmm. Apparently, also, uh, press people thought this was a uh, just a gimmick. Like, they, it wasn't going to be true. So right. they, at some point, one magazine or paper hired a pregnant woman to go and try to get into the film late and they basically the theater manager said no i'm sorry you can't do that you can wait in my office until the next screening <laughs> which is wild i mean good on theater owners for actually enforcing this because i'm thinking of my time at the theater if the studio said oh you're not allowed to do something I would have been like, uh, okay, sure, whatever. Like, how are you going to fucking know? <laughs> I will say it wasn't an entirely original uh, publicity stunt because Clouseau used the exact same thing for Les Diaboliques in France. <laughs> oh, my God. Just proof that the Americans do not think that things that happen outside of America matter. <laughs> it's so wild. But you know what? It worked, though, because because of this, like, people were lining up outside the theater to see right. this movie. And, you know... It, <laughs> I always love seeing like archival footage of that because it's always in Times Square. It's always in New York City. So I would have mm -hmm. loved to have seen what lines for this look like in non-New uh, York City. <laughs> Here we are in Omaha with everyone walking up, buying a ticket, and going into the exactly. theater. <laughs> yes, that, 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 that. Um, so yeah, uh, initial reviews of the film were... Okay, l let's talk about this, Joe. They were mixed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to point out Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, because um, this quote from him, There is not an abundance of subtlety or the lately familiar Hitchcock bent towards significant and colorful scenery in this obviously low-budget job. He obviously. called the slow buildups to sudden shocks reliably melodramatic, but contested mm -hmm. Hitchcock's psychological points, reminiscent of craft ebbing studies, and less effective. Um, while the film did not conclude satisfactorily for him, he commented that the cast's performances were fair. <laughs> <laughs> they are adequate. They are human bodies that have been filmed by a camera. Everyone, Bosley Crowther would go on to put Psycho on his best of the year list <laughs> at the end of the year. <laughs> And remind me, that was after it became a huge sensation and made a shit ton of money? So that's my thing, right? I mean, look, look, we can go on and on about how critics and, like, you know, subjectivity and whatever. Or objectivity, mm -hmm. subjectivity, whatever. This... <laughs> it does seem like critics were so annoyed by the fact that they had to go see this movie with the plebes, essentially. Right. And that they took it out in their review. That, and I think that they just... They didn't expect to see a quote-unquote lowbrow film from someone like Hitchcock, right? He's slumming it. He's giving us the schlock. And also, yeah, he wouldn't even let us see it in advance. We had to go and buy a ticket like everybody else. Well, and, you know, we had a British critic who I was so offended by the film that she walked out before the end and then resigned as a, uh, from her job as a film critic. <laughs> wow. That is some privilege right there. 
Other negative reviews stated it was a blot on an honorable career. It was plainly a gimmick movie. Um, merely one of those television shows padded out to two hours. Hmm. It's interesting because I don't know that I would entirely disagree with the idea that it is a bit of a gimmick film. Like, it definitely mm -hmm. feels like an extremely technical film. But in some ways, it does also, this is Hitchcock just kind of fucking around, having a good time, trying different things. I'm interested to talk about that when we get to the plot, too. Because, yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see if you feel like the film rebounds well enough after the shower scene. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you still have positive reviews, though. I mean, most reviews did praise the performances of both Perkins and Lee. But again, generally, this is just a mixed reception, uh, which I, again, I think it's so funny, right? Because this is quite often considered one of the best films ever made. Right. I mean, I think part of that has to do with its legacy and what it ends up spawning, right? Like, yes. there's a reason people talk about this as the first slasher and love or hate that subgenre. If you think about it, this and Peeping Tom change the way we make an entire subgenre of film. A hundred percent. And y'all, I will not rehash the Peeping Tom drama, so I will just, again, redirect you. Please go listen to that episode, because what happened to Michael Powell, the director of that film, is not fair. Well, and it's completely different from what happens to Hitchcock. No, a hundred percent. Hitchcock became famous. <laughs> Powell's career went away. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the splatter film, essentially, was inspired by Psycho. The, I'm sorry, inspired by the success of Psycho. Let's see. There that. we go. Yes, we, we love a successful film, and then we try to replicate it ad nauseum. Well, that's, I mean, the thing, three years later, Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast, which is considered the first splatter film, mm -hmm. was released. Uh, Hammer Film Productions launched a series of mystery thrillers, including 1965's The Nanny, uh, starring Betty Davis. Of course, 1963 saw Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which maybe has less in common with Psycho, but I think the lowbrow content is what helped get that movie made. Right, yeah. And let's not forget that we also have Homicidal just the very next year after this. Exactly. Right after this. And William Castle's career, Jesus Christ. The 60s are just like, Castle, 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 Castle. <laughs> uh, I don't even want to talk about Rotten Tomatoes here. I mean, we've got a 96% with an average score of 9.3 out of 10, a 97 out of 100 on Metacritic. Letterbox users have given it an 8.6 out of 10. Again, it's kind of hard to discuss box office for this, but basically, uh, Psycho grossed $46,500 at the DeMille and a record $19,500 at the Baronet Theater. Following its expansion the following week, it grossed $143,000 from five theaters. Hmm. Pretty good. Broke box office records in Japan, the rest of East Asia, France, Britain, South America, the US, Canada. It was a moderate success in Australia for a brief period. It was the second highest grossing film of 1960 behind Spartacus, eventually earning a box office gross of $32 million. And wow. it remains the most commercially successful film of Hitchcock's career. And he actually, because of his deal, uh, basically earned over $15 million from Psycho. <laughs> Ooh, that is a lot of money. Uh, but yeah, I mean, needless to say, Psycho is considered one of the greatest films ever made. Made it on countless top 10 lists, best of lists. It's one of the most recognizable films in cinema history and arguably Hitchcock's best known film. And right. the shower scene is considered one of the most memorable scenes in cinema history. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah. 45 minutes later. <laughs> I was going to say, so remind me again how you got that down. <laughs> uh, this is four pages that I cut down from eight. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Next time, fewer pregnant lady anecdotes. I'm, okay, I, I'm sorry. That That is important information. No, it is not. It is important! 
I, I just, I feel like he was more bitter at Miles because the Audrey Hepburn thing had also just fallen through because of her pregnancy. So he was probably very much on a birth control needs to happen kick. Oh boy. Yeah. Pregnant actresses keep getting in the way of my mastercraft. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, much like Trace's extended production history, I do have quite a few references, which I feel like I'm making up for some lost ground, like the last couple of weeks, maybe even months, it's been a little bit light on some of the uh, references. So I'm bringing in not one, not two, but four. Four different people I'm going to reference here. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. You know, I feel like I've been going a little light on production history sometimes, too. So we'll call it even. We're really making up for it with this Psycho episode. This is true. That's why there's just the two of us, so that we can probably go long and not have to worry about dragging somebody else into it. If we had two guests, this would be a four-hour episode. Oh my Jesus, yeah. <laughs> okay, so references for this episode include Alexander Dottie's chapter in his book, Flaming Classics, Queering the Film Canon, and the chapter is called, He's a Transvestite. Uh, not exactly. How queer is my psycho? I also will be referencing Gabriela Colombo Machado's piece, We Are All in Our Private Traps, Transphobia in Hitchcock's Psycho, from The Scattered Pelican, as well as briefer references to David Grevin's piece, The Death Mother in Psycho, Hitchcock, Femininity, and Queer Desire. And then finally, Harmony Colangelo's Dressing Down the Killer Crossdresser Trope, Is It Inherently Problematic in Bloody Disgusting? And all of these will be in the show notes. Indeed. Okay, so... Incredibly memorable. Trace, you will be pleased to know even I noticed the score. I actually secretly love Bernard Herman, like... All of his scores, I think, are just dynamite. And this one, matched with Saul Bass's opening credits, are mm. just very, very evocative. I will say, uh, <laughs> I love the opening credits. Uh, the remake, it's, it does the same fucking thing. But they're green. And oh. a hmm. really bright green that I almost think is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in case you didn't know it, we're making it in color. Here's an ugly color. Well, that's the thing. A lot of Anne Heche's outfits in that remake, I was like, did Romy and Michelle make these for you? <laughs> Like, oh, wow. they're so colorful. It's like, I guess Gus Van Sant was like, y'all, we have color. Let's use color. Right. Well, you know, and sometimes we see pictures of colorized black and white films and they feel off, right? Like, we're just too used to seeing the images in black and white. So when you see something that you're always used to seeing in a charcoal or a dark color and then suddenly wow. it comes out and it's pink or red, it just doesn't feel right and i, I will say this because i'm not even a hater of this remake i'm very much like it's an interesting experiment i don't know if it's exactly a success, it's but... an experiment right it's almost less of a film and more of a novel enterprise yeah like, i truly like i gave it a two and a half because like, i just i don't know how to review this because right. its goal was to mimic and plagiarize essentially the original film which it exactly. does accomplish so i it, <laughs> nevertheless mm -hmm. when you are shooting for black and white it is not the same thing as shooting for color. Artistic no. and creative decisions are affected based on how you are shooting. That's why the Academy Awards had different categories for black and white cinematography and color cinematography at, at the time. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Gus Van Sant doesn't try to change anything about that based on the fact that you are shooting for color this time is a little mind boggling to me. Well, or he takes it too far and he says, hey, color every Everywhere. fucking wear because I can finally do it this way. Exactly. <laughs> 
All right, so this movie opens on a Friday afternoon in December in Phoenix, Arizona. We push in through a window. Hitch apparently wanted to do this via helicopter shot, and they could not keep the camera steady enough, so we just had to do kind of fade-in transitions, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we catch up with unmarried couple, salacious, melodramatic, tawdry, Oh, my goodness. Uh, so this is this is Sam, played by John Gavin, as well as Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee. They have just finished copulating on the lunch hour. And it's such an important opening scene because even though Sam will disappear for more than an hour, we have to understand what is driving Marion when she steals the money. So for her to say, I'm tired of having to have these clandestine meetings in hotels that charge by the hour and they care more about when you check out than when you check in. Mm -hmm. Like she wants respectability. She wants marriage. And it's not that this guy doesn't want to give that to her. It's just that he's got a ton of debt. Yeah. But I appreciate that Sam is not an asshole. Like he's very much like a, which apparently too, they were, I think in the book, Sam and Lila have kind of a burgeoning romance going on, which could see it Mm -hmm. would have been a huge mistake because that would make him look like a huge piece of shit in this movie. But here's the thing. When you watch the remake, do you not get that impression from Viggo Mortensen and uh... Julianne Moore? Yes, I, I, I do. But I also think it's partly because Sam is kind of a blando guy in that remake. Fair. Mm-hmm. And Julianne Moore is much more aggressive in, in the remake than Vera Miles is here, and which yes. was intentional, but it kind of creates a sexual tension between them that doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Joe, question. Is it vital that we know it's 2.43 p.m. on December the 11th? <laughs> I think it's important to know because there's a finite window before the bank would close for the weekend. Mm, okay. But also, that is a hell of a late lunch break. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, bitch, you're going to, like, you have maybe an hour left in the workday, which, granted, when she asked to leave early, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, right. It's probably four o'clock by this point. <laughs> <laughs> bitch, we're all knocking off early. Yeah. So she does get permission from her boss, Mr. Lowry, who is played by Vaughn Taylor. And that's mostly because he is in the process of whining and dying. Mr. Cassidy, who's played by Frank Albertson. They basically close this big deal. Mr. Cassidy has tons of money to burn. He is not, uh, how shall we say this? He's not shy about flaunting his excessive wealth, particularly in front of Marianne's face. And of course, uh, Carolyn, the other office co-worker who was played by Pat Hitchcock in a performance that does not suck, unlike whatever happened to Baby Jane's nepotism casting. Oh, yeah. No, it's not, there's not a lot of comedy in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Pat Hitchcock's like, oh, yeah, my husband was so angry when he found out I took tranquilizer the day of my wedding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's a very comedic performance. It's wild that in that 90-minute documentary, Pat Hitchcock says, my father wouldn't just cast mean anything i had to be perfect for the role and i thought oh so your dad envisioned you as a tranquilizer like very floozy kind of person good for you pat it's fine it's fine (laughs) in any case uh so carolyn suspects that mr cassidy was only doing this to marion because he saw the ring on carolyn's finger but basically We learned that Mr. Cassidy has $40,000 in cash that he's going to use to buy his daughter a new house. And Trace, I I messaged you this because the money was astronomical, but uh, $40,000 in 1960 is 
$411,000 in so today's money. That is wild. And I did the math too, because in, in the remake, in the 98 remake, it is $400,000. But okay. $40,000 in 1998 money would have been about $130,000. So okay. they really amped it up for that. I yes. also, me and my like, now that I'm an adult and like paying taxes, um, I, I love this line. So you know, he brings up the money and I think, I think it's Pat Hitchcock who's like, I declare. And mm-hmm. he's like, I I don't. I do not. That's why, <laughs> that's why I get to keep it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So you're kind of a villain because you're you're basically just admitting to doing tax evasion. I love it. I love it. He's also just a stupid man. He's like, look at this pretty girl. Like, she'll do whatever I say. She's not going to steal my money. Well, and that's the thing, right? In 1960, you wouldn't have this. But I can imagine in a remake or even a more contemporary movie, he would be lecherous, right? He'd be trying to use this money to propose or proposition marion like oh. hey don't you want to fuck me look at how rich i am oh honestly i feel like that's what he's doing by 1960 standards he in is. this film yeah. like basically whenever she leaves uh, i'm shocked he doesn't slap her ass or grab her ass in the way <laughs> Anyway, she gets him back because she offers to take the money to the bank rather than let it sit in uh, the safe in the office over the weekend. And then she packs that suitcase. She changes from white underwear to black underwear. And then she hits the fucking road. So, okay, I think one of my favorite aspects of janet lee's performance and we'll get to this too as we get to a lot of these voiceover scenes Mm -hmm. she has to act without dialogue for so many of her scenes and even like because here's the thing when we cut to her in the hotel room do you think she's already decided to leave or do you think she because there's a shower where we see her kind of looking at the money Mm mm-hmm well, I guess she's already packed up, so maybe she's already decided by this point that she's going to go. But nevertheless, I- I'm fully on board with this character. 100%. We have to care about her and implicitly understand that even though she is doing something criminal, she's not necessarily a bad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she's also a very bad criminal. Oh, my God. Everyone in this movie <laughs> is terrible at lying, and it's kind of hilarious. And uh, honestly, I feel like I feel like a part of me would like, be really annoyed with that today. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it's human, right? Like, a right. lot of criminals don't start out as criminals. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I actually find it more endearing in this movie, and maybe that's me giving a long leash to a film from 1960. But, you know, when she hits the road and she sees her boss crossing the street in front of her car... She flips out, and then when she sleeps overnight on the side of the road and gets woken up by a police officer who is played by Mort Mills, you can see her sweating buckets. I actually find it so, so relatable. So I'm curious for you. Let's say you don't know what this movie's about. Mm -hmm. I even want to say you don't know the name of the movie is Psycho, because I think that that title in and of itself is kind of a spoiler well it it is so you watch this movie you're like okay cool i'm watching this kind of a drama about Mm -hmm. a woman who's trying to get with her boyfriend and she steals money to do so like none of this is this is a horror movie no it's not screaming someone's going to get murdered or there's going to be a mummified corpse and that's that's also my thing where i'm like well how stupid were audiences in 19th i mean look i know we didn't have google we didn't have the internet whatever but i just feel like I don't know, man. Like, the name Psycho in and of itself is a spoiler. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think people went into it knowing it was a Hitchcock film and that he was going to dazzle them, but they probably didn't know exactly what to expect. And I think you probably 
in a way, get disarmed by this opening, right? You think, oh, maybe it's not the picture I thought it was going to be, because look at these two sweethearts. You want to root for them. Like, I think Janet Lee in her talk for the documentary, she even says, you know, even when I get to the Bates Motel, like, you think it's going to be a love triangle. Like, which of these two men am I yeah. going to pick? Well, hey. I said stupid for audiences in 1960. Maybe yeah, it was, was a little mean. No, no, no. Maybe it was naivete because they there hadn't seen anything like this before. Exactly. Yeah, so a, a quick note about this highway patrol officer. Mm. I do think it's very scary and intimidating the way that he questions her. He takes note of her license plate. He then follows her as she goes to try to trade in her car so that she can switch out the plates and that kind of stuff. Like, it's very creepy. You know, I heard a bunch of people say, you know, psycho said a cab. Okay, sure. Well, but 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 here's the thing, though. I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. But I actually think this is very suspenseful. Oh, no, it's fantastic because you're waiting to see whether she's going to get away with it. Because as we said, she's really bad at lying. She obviously is lying and he picks up on it. It makes the movie way more interesting where it's not, oh, she's effortlessly getting away with this. She's, a, you know, a con woman who's done this a billion times. Like, this is her first time. It's huge. And she sucks at it. It is wild. <laughs> like, I mean, again, I haven't seen this film in like 10-ish years, but I was more struck by the human drama of it this time than I think I ever have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the performances, I think. Oh, God. She's so good in it. So I do want to pull in Grevin to start off here. So just thinking about this patrol officer and the way that we never see his eyes because he only ever wears the helmet and these reflective glasses that completely cover all semblance of kind of humanity. So he seems very cold, very sterile, very threatening. And Grevin says that the image of this cop's inhuman gaze is almost anticipatory of the like empty eyes of mother that we're going to see when she gets turned around in the twist reveal. Yeah, there, there's a lot of like symbolism motifs and stuff that again, like 20 year old Trace wasn't picking up on that. I was like, oh, yeah, I say water specifically. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. And of course, Hitchcock has put in his usual things where he's completely obsessed with people eating as well as birds. Okay. Are you like a big Hitchcock nut? Like, do you, have you seen a lot of Hitchcock's films? I, I am almost ashamed to admit that I've only seen, I'm going to say six of his films if I'm being generous. Uh, I'm not. That much more familiar than you by the sounds of it. I think I've probably seen about 10, but most of the ones that I've seen fall within a certain parameter. So like I haven't seen a lot of his early career films yeah. and I haven't seen a lot of his late career films. So I'm one of those like trashy art fags who's just seen all of the classics. <laughs> yeah, no, I I've seen The Birds. I've right. seen Psycho. I've seen Vertigo. I actually I haven't. Oh, I have not seen North by Northwest or Rear Window. Oh, Rear Window is mm -hmm. real good. We could actually uh, cover that one because I definitely read that main character as queer. Well, you know, I saw 2007's Disturbia, which is basically a remake of Rear Window. So I think I'm good, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely don't want to kill you right now. And no one is screaming at you. Uh, my favorite is Marnie, by the way, that Sean Connery having like basically psychosexual difficulties, like getting it on with a woman because mm -hmm. she keeps gaslighting him. It's fantastic. It's a, a slightly later career Alfred Hitchcock, but, um, well, I mean, speaking of like, I, I actually really, his last film 
family plot that I think is generally considered one of his weaker films. Oh, yeah, you like that one. I think you've talked about it before. Well, I've never seen it, but it's a black comedy thriller, and I've talked to people who do like it, and it's like, oh, like, but people I know, I'd be like, okay, like, I think I would like that, but I think it's just a little bit wacky, but it's Karen Black and Bruce Dern. Oh, interesting. But anyway, I'm sorry. Back to Psycho. (laughs) There we go. Okay, so she tries to trade in the car with California Charlie, who is played by John Anderson. And once again, she's real real bad at this. She doesn't try to negotiate. She pressures him into giving her the car, doesn't want to test drive it, doesn't fight him on the price, (laughs) nearly forgets her bag. Like, she's a disaster, essentially. I mean, she's paying $700 in cash. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for this thing well also he's like uh what do you like, is someone following you why would you think that and she's like, i don't know maybe because you keep staring at the cop across the street yeah also there's a cop staring at you I'm from across the street at you. <laughs> it's very unnerving yeah i do love the um well you can do anything you have a mind to being a woman you will <laughs> casual misogyny <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. This guy's a handful, although he says he doesn't want any trouble because, you know, first customer of the day is always going to be the one that gives you a hassle. You're like, okay, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Marion gets into her new car and she drives away into the night. What's interesting is like we will never see that highway patrol officer again so it's not like that character will come back and end up being an instrumental force in finding her or uncovering what's going on at the Bates Motel it's like no that was just this thing that was happening to her that drove the narrative so that she could get to the Bates Motel and that's kind of the thing right like did you know about the shower scene before you saw the film for the first time I did yeah so you knew that this woman was going to die right yes and that's I, I envy, I envy 1960. Right. I, I would, honestly, I would kill to find like someone who was not a movie person and just show them Psycho to be like, yeah, start with like, this is what it's about. <laughs> Here mm-hmm. you go. Because you really think, oh, it's again, this love triangle heist movie of sorts. And right. it's not. And I, oh yeah, I, I love that. But it's, it's so hard for me to divorce that from my viewings because I've always known about the shower scene. Mm-hmm. Well, even, I mean, you go into this movie... Knowing about the shower scene, you also know about the Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates of it all, right? Because yeah. we've gotten multiple sequels and also a fucking prequel TV show and Ooh. all of these other IP properties. But I always forget that Anthony Perkins doesn't show up in this movie until 25 or 30 minutes in. Oh, Vera Miles shows up past the hour mark. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's wild, right? We just we don't make movies like this. Anymore. No. Maybe ever. <laughs> no, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Marion drives throughout the night and we, we've we already had a little bit of it when she saw Mr. Lowry the first time before she parked the car and slept overnight. But here she's really going through it. Like she's imagining what the conversation is going to be like on Monday when they discover that the money is missing, how they're going to call her sister. She's going to be so okay. fucked. <laughs> I, I, I would love to know if they played any of this for Janet Lee while she was acting. Because here's the thing. There are little subtleties in her facial mm-hmm. expressions while she's doing this. And there's a part where it's the guy that has the money. And he's like, I'll get it back. And if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. And upon right. upon that voiceover, Janet Lee cracks a smile. Mm-hmm. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's another moment where we hear the used car salesman say, and she even flirted with me a little, and she gives a, a kind of sly look to yes. that as well. And 
I love this idea that this is the only moment that she really relishes the act of what she's done because she will come to regret this and she will change her mind. But by then it's too late. And I don't know, there's something really enticing about how she almost finds this sexy. She gets off on this idea that she is a powerful woman who has stolen men's money. Well, so, okay, so this is like another person I do it for me, but like, um, so when I get really excited about something, I, I rub my hands together, uh-huh. like, like so, and <laughs> I just imagine like, like this smile that Janet Lee is cracking is her, the equivalent of that for her, because she's like, ah! exactly. like she would just cackle like a mad woman. She's like, ah, I'm getting away with it. <laughs> <laughs> even as I'm terrified, even as I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die in this rainstorm. She's like, oh, I feel really hot right now. I need a good dicking. <laughs> she's just she's really yeah. horny off of this like whole theft thing. Not really, though. She she mostly just wants to go to bed at this point. So that's yeah. when she pulls over to the Bates Motel because she sees the vacancy sign through the rain. And uh, she sees a woman sitting in the upstairs window of the house above the motel. And then she honks on the horn and down comes Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. And we move into the office. I... Hey, I forgot that we actually see so many shots of this mother silhouette. Right? I remembered like one. <laughs> right. Well, even in this one, we see her move because obviously mm-hmm. it's Norman dressed up as mother at this point. Um, let's talk about Anthony Perkins, right? Okay. I love this performance from him because, oh, yeah. look, the screenwriter, like we get, we get what Norman is. Anthony Perkins imbues this character with such empathy. Mm-hmm. And it's he's very disarming. And, and that is... Again, apologies for bringing up the remake again, but that, that is my issue with Vince Vaughn. So in the scene where he talks to Mary and we're having this dinner, he is immediately aggressive towards he's creepy, her. creepy, right? Yes. And it's like, well, he's clearly the, the titular psycho. <laughs> <laughs> There's no subtlety to this. Uh, but, but, but Perkins walks that line so finely. Like... He gets crossed with her, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but, like, Mm -hmm. I just, there's so many shades of nuance to his performance that I really, really, really appreciate. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's he's also fantastic. The conversation that he and Marion have about his mom when they're having, well, when she's having dinner, there's so much to say about that. But we're not there yet. Well, I, all right, so, so she's checking in. Okay, hang on, hang on. Before before we get into it too far, I okay. want to bring in Dottie. So Ooh. he highlights that people have actually done a kind of like Nomi Malone nomenclature deep dive into what Norman's name means, which I was like, oh, I'd never even thought about it before. It's like, Wait, his name is what? Norman. What's more to say? Go on. So apparently, if you want to start to think about it, break his name in half. Norman he who is neither woman nor man, since as we discover later, he can be one in place of the other, or rather one and the other, or one within the other. Mm-hmm. But also, Norman is one letter away from normal, and it's also Norma is contained within Norman. Well, also, his last name is Bates, and I don't know if you know this, but in pornography circles, Bates is short for masturbate. Really, Trace? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just bring that up because I actually really hate when I see people like, oh, I'm going to bait later. I'm like, ew. Ew, what? <laughs> I don't like I've that. I've never heard that before. Oh, you've, oh no, baiters. Like, B-A-T-O-R is like a term. Never heard that. Oh. Wild. Watch okay. more porn. <laughs> oh, I watch plenty of porn. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All you baiters, come out. Come out of the woodworks. No, <laughs> do <me> not. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything about it. Norman Bates. Ah! Oh my God. 
Honestly, sounds like a drag name. Norman Bader. <laughs> well, that's what you just have Norma Bates. There we go. <laughs> I'm willing to bet it's been done. Yeah. Have you really never heard that though, Bates? No. Oh my god. Oh, I I see it way too often, so maybe I should stop watching as much porn as there I do. There we go. Yes. Maybe it's more a you thing than a me thing. <laughs> Y'all, back me up, people. Come on. Um, oh, anyway. Yeah, like you need people to back you up. <laughs> Come on, there's a bunch of perverts out there. They will. <laughs> of course they will. <laughs> okay, so yes, we're checking Marion in. And I do love this moment where it's the two of them. She's drying off because she's covered in rain. He's being very nice. He's a very polite young man. And he says, where are you from? And he's got his hand hovering over the key rings. And okay, when she yes. says Los Angeles, he gives her one so that he can fucking spy on her. He, I, I wrote this. I was like, he hesitates because he he like he grabs for one, then moves to two mm-hmm. and then goes back to one. This is a weird like, I don't know if this would actually apply in 1960, but I have to assume the inference here is you're from Los Angeles. You're a big city woman, which means you're kind of loose. So I'm going to put you in one where I can spy on you. I, well, she's on her, is Phoenix like a, an important origin place for her? Like, is there something about Phoenix? I think it's just meant to be that it's within a driving distance of a couple of days. Well, also the thing is this, though. She's 15 miles away from Fairvale. She's so close, she's so close. to Sam. <laughs> and she finds out here, but it's raining so hard and this guy seems nice and she's tired. So it's one of those things where it's meant to be so tragic about how near she is to getting to what she wants. But because she makes the decision to stop at this motel versus one of the million of other ones that Arbogast looks at later, it's just like, oh, it's so bad. Oh, she was so close. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I felt the tragedy of Marion's story in this rewatch more than mm-hmm. I've ever felt it before. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So because of the rain, he says, you know, hey, why don't you have dinner with me? And uh, we can just stay here because you're not going to want to go back outside. So he shows her to her room and she ends up hiding the cash in the newspaper and she leaves that on the bedside table. And then she hears him talking to Mrs. Bates or mother, Mm. who is voiced by Virginia Gregg and will reprise the role throughout all of the subsequent films. And basically... Mother is not having this woman come up to the house. Also, imagine how loud this has to be for her to hear this from right. inside her hotel motel room where there's vape, quote unquote, <laughs> are speaking inside the house. Right? It's like, what, do you open all the doors and windows so that I could hear? Well, I literally say, I will not satiate her hunger for food or my son. <laughs> okay, mother. <laughs> Calm your tits a little bit. Shut up, mother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of mother, I'm going to bring Dottie back in. So uh, here's a fun fact. So 1942 sees the publication of a book called A Generation of Vipers by Philip Wiley. And he coined the term momism. Have you ever heard of this, Trace? I have not heard of this, but... Not as popular as Bader's. I was going to say, like, it's not like Babe, but please enlighten me. (laughs) We'll teach each other something this time. Okay, so momism refers to an American generation that was rapidly becoming a matriarchy in which domineering and overly protective mothers disrupted the Oedipal structure of the middle-class nuclear family by smothering their sons with unnatural affection. So basically this book vilifies domineering mothers, but it also associates 
homosexuality and lesbianism as threats to national security. Oh, that seems about right, especially given the political climate of... 100%. 1960. <laughs> we're right in the middle of McCarthyism, right? So yeah. this is very much the time where it's like, oh, well, if you're seeing this domineering mother, she's probably got a homosexual son... Or you need to be mindful that that's what she could be producing. Because, of course, Jesus. we don't believe that gay people or queer people are born. We believe that they are made by these domineering women. Uh, okay, 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 okay. It leads into the queer reading of Norman, right? Yep. Like, part of the reason that he's queer is because he's got this mother that smothered him. Well, but that's, okay. Well, see, I was going to say, do you view Norman as asexual? But at the same time, he gets, a, we, we hear many times, he gets aroused by Marion Crane. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the thing. Let's lay the cards on the table because there are so many different readings of Norman's sexuality and what the film is saying about sexuality in general. So we know that there is a trans or a transphobic reading of the end of this film. Right. We also know that Norman... And or because he's played by Anthony Perkins, who was a closeted homosexual in real life, is often coded as gay. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, we also get inferences or clues throughout the film that he was turned on by women. So maybe he's a queer who is also misogynistic or maybe he is a heterosexual who is self-loathing. He's asexual and infantilized. So I think Psycho encourages multiple readings of this kind. I would agree with that. I mean, I feel like I feel like today the default is, oh, yeah, Psycho has done a lot of harm. It's it's a it's a negative portrayal of gender identity. Mm -hmm. I, I do get that. But again, I don't I don't think it's as black and white as that. No. And, and here's the thing. I'm not going to dispute that this film has a harmful legacy. Right. But I am going to circle back to the same kind of conversation we had with Silence of the Lambs, where it's in some ways less about the film and the way that the film was received yes. and the legacy of it. But I do still think there's interesting conversations to be had about what is going on within the world of the film. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So Norman comes back down. We've got sandwiches and milk, which again, <laughs> if we're talking about infantilization, Dude, <laughs> you're an adult man and you're having sandwiches and milk for dinner. I, I mean, look, you, you know how much I love I know milk. how you feel about milk. But, but no, but, but, but milk is a, hey, I'm really high before bed. I'm going to sit and drink my milk. I don't drink milk with dinner. That, yes. <laughs> but I think also it's a shorthand for films to say, who drinks milk but children? Right. Which, again, that, that is what Norman does. Of course Norm is going to offer this sexy slut mm -hmm. milk. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> mother. <laughs> mother. Oh, mother. I mean, she is such a slut, right? She's just walking around her fucking bra. Well, the funny thing is, is that the movie literally introduces us to Marion as a quote-unquote loose woman. She's having sex outside of marriage but right. the movie also does everything to prove to us that like you can't look at this woman as a slut she wants to be in a marriage with one man right if anything i think the movie says you shouldn't be throwing stones at people because you have no fucking idea what their lives are well that's the thing though honestly if you were showing me the opening scene of this movie out of context i would assume that sam was married and had a family and then she was right. she was the mistress 100 percent. that's not the case they are nope. actually just two consenting adults who can't make it work because of financial issues 
yeah, if anything, he's got that bitch wife who keeps taking all that alimony money. <laughs> I know, but but when when she gets married again, that'll be fine. It'll go away. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Things were different in 1960, I think. <laughs> or maybe not. And that's the thing, too, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like, I... <sighs> I, I wonder, I wonder if anyone had trouble relating to Marion Crane because, yeah, they, they looked down on her morality, not just from the, oh, the, the thieving, but yeah, because she was fucking some man out of wedlock at a hotel on her lunch break. Well, I think there's even some implicit judgment to be made. You know, the cop, the used car salesman, Norman himself, they all look at her as, what is this pretty young woman doing here? Like, why doesn't she have someone with her? What is she running right. from? Like the default assumption is that she's a damsel in distress or what is this harlot, this hussy doing out here? Oh Why isn't she at home with her husband or kids? I love the word harlot. It it, <laughs> it has a similar like bite as the word cunt to me, but like I'm it's going. more PG rated. I don't call women harlots. I just like hearing <laughs> women called harlots in these types of movies. <laughs> It's like an old timey derogatory it's term funny. for like slut, right? It's, yeah, it's fun. It, it, yes, it, it's an old. It's like a Shakespearean slut. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Terrible. As you laugh, I love it. Harlot, oh, <laughs> Jezebel. <laughs> See, I love Jezebel. Yes, Jezebel's good. <laughs> okay, so we are eating in the office because Dorman takes one look at her bedroom and he's like, "No, I can't go in there. I'm sorry." Well. But I like that, though, because here's the thing. She invites him into her room. Mm -hmm. Do you think she has designs on him then? No. Well, okay, she's then... trying to be nice. Okay. He's okay, offering okay. to make her a dinner. And she's like, oh, this. I think she feels pity for him. He seems yeah. like a nice enough guy. And he's offering to make me a meal because he doesn't want to send me out into the rain. And she's like, of course, I'll invite him in. Yes. I, I think she's already begun to infantilize him, actually. Right. And then she will, of course, cross Change that bridge. Yeah. It, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. I mean, the minute she steps foot into this office, it's like, holy shit, this guy's got problems because look at all these taxidermied birds. This scene is crucial. It's amazing. It is so good. Would it surprise you to know that in high school drama class, when I had to pick a monologue from a Ooh. film, I picked... So it, it's not truly a monologue because Marion interrupts him twice to ask him a question. Right. So I had to like rework it to where like I, I wasn't answering a question. But yeah, sure. um, the, 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 the subtle switch from, oh, like kind of like infantilized Norman Bates to you want me to send my mother mm -hmm. to an institution? Like, and again, yeah. it, this is, sorry, con continue with what you're going to say, because this is all fucking great. No, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, because this scene is so fucking vital. Like, if you think about it, we don't know much about Norman no. until this part. So this is more or less his introduction proper in the film, where we finally get to get a sense of what is this guy's deal? And he starts talking about, you know, empty moments and getting caught in life's traps he bristles at this idea of putting mother into a madhouse or an institution and you can tell that there's a personal feeling there like this isn't a son who feels bad about having to take care of his ill mother there's also a part of him that when we come to understand what's going on in the film 
he worries that he will be the one who is put into a madhouse or an institution, which is literally what happens to him. But even the way, I will bring back Vince Vaughn's portrayal into this scene because this is really the crucial moment. Mm -hmm. This this scene will make or break Norman for the audience, okay? Right. You will either empathize with because when he gets angry with her, like, it, it is threatening. It actually is quite frightening. Mm-hmm. Perkins manages to just walk this line of, oh, yes. like, it is weird, but it's not weird enough to where I'm, like, running for the hills. Mm-hmm. If you watch that remake, Vince Vaughn is too... It's one pitch, right? It's very one pitch. There's not really a lot of nuance there. And I'm not saying Vince Vaughn doesn't do anything good in that remake. I think he does a couple of things really well. But th- this, to me, is the crucial scene to get you on Norman's... Maybe not on Norman's side completely, but, like, to empathize with him. And right. Perkins accomplishes that where Vince Vaughn does not. And, yeah. But, like, oh, God, I just, like... <sighs> People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Like, it's it's haunting. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah, actually, so I have two different quotes from okay. my four references for this scene. Because it's important to remember that this is also Marion trying to relate to Norman because she has just heard his mother openly chastising him because of her right like Mm -hmm. she she sort of incited his mother's reaction to him so so Dottie says the parlor sequence is where incest is most clearly put forward as the explanation for why norman acts so tentatively around a woman he seems to desire Mm -hmm. so one way of understanding norman is as someone whose incestuous desires are constantly in conflict with his quote-unquote normal heterosexual urges hence his alternating awkward flirting and voyeurism with statements about how he needs to stay with his mother because she is his best friend and because he is a poor substitute for her dead lover so you're just like oh there's a lot to unpack going on with those statements the the line is said as a poor substitute for a lover i was kind of like <laughs> like when somebody says that yeah no that's kind of fucked up yeah it's a little messed up yeah okay so gabriella colombo machado says both mother as in the character of mother and arbogast question norman's ability to perform as is expected of by a man so i think this movie is also saying interesting things about traditional gender norms right right so he said you know oh marion shouldn't you be married shouldn't you have kids and so on and here it's like oh norman what are your interests in women you know should you be taking care of your mom because isn't that more of a domestic kind of housekeeper role so colombo machado continues Mother thinks he has no guts, while Arbogast suggests that he can be fooled by women. Either way, these intense inspections suggest that he is not behaving according to his assigned gender. He's not meeting traditional expectations of masculinity. Uh, okay, okay, okay. So I hear you. keep that in the in the back of your head for a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so... Marion has a wave of different emotional reactions to these uh, confessions. You know, sometimes she looks very concerned for him. Sometimes she looks a little scared of him. But ultimately, it also helps her to understand she herself has made a mistake and she is going to actively plan to go back to Phoenix in the morning. So she makes that slip up there. And then when they go back into the kind of front of the office, she also introduces herself verbally to him and she uses her real name as opposed to Ugh. the name that she has written in the ledger. So Norman notes both of those things. He doesn't say anything, 
but it's after that when she leaves that he spies on her interesting okay so i actually wasn't a hundred percent sure if he caught her using a different name than what she wrote in the ledger I think he does. It's a very subtle reaction from Perkins. Okay. So you you can look at it and he kind of like, there's just this beat where yeah. you can see his eyes sort of go, hmm, okay. But he, he honestly doesn't telegraph anything. Yeah, it's, oh uh, God. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about this voyeurism scene because yeah, mm-hmm. as you said, this is one of the key distinctions between the 98 remake where we do actively see Vince Vaughn's Norman masturbating as he's watching right. Marion undress. And here we don't. We just get the impression that he's looking at her, but we don't know what he's thinking. I'm curious. Here's the thing. A lot of critics pointed out the masturbation edition as like a, oh, like, of course, like, why is the movie going to add that? Like, it's it, it's making explicit something that it was already implicit. Exactly. Yeah. I get it. I get it. It's, t- I don't care. Whatever. Fucking show him masturbating. It's fine. <laughs> It feels like a very 90s edition in my mind where yes. it's like, okay, we're we're coming off of some pretty sexually liberated movies. <laughs> and this feels like, how do we make a 1960 film contemporary? Well, we can put in some added sexuality. Like Basic Instinct was six years prior to the remake of Psycho. Like <laughs> It's the same year as Wild Things. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, um, but, 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 but here's the thing. Do you think audiences watching norman watch marion was almost as salacious as an audience audience watching norman masturbate to marion ah quite possibly because if you think about it the way that hitchcock films this is we see through the people at marion oh yeah she is undressing so we are doing the voyeurism alongside norman oh see okay I, i was gonna wait to bring this up until post murder but i actually love that the audience is complicit for so much of this because yep. we we spend 12 minutes post shower scene mm-hmm. with Norman cleaning up this murder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are there cleaning up the murder scene right alongside him. It is great. I love it. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So I have uh, one more thing from Columbo Machado okay. about specifically the voyeurs and peace. And this I found very interesting because I had mm. never thought of it this way. Okay. Okay. So. She's actually referencing Grevin in her piece, which is very interesting. It made me feel meta reading both of them. So she says, first, Grevin points out Norman could be looking at Marion with heterosexual desire. So that's one reading, right? He is a heterosexual man looking at a woman getting undressed, getting turned on. Second reading, Dottie. (laughs) So she's referencing both of them. Dottie claims that the voyeur could be mother, not Norman, and she could be desiring Marion within a homosexual site, concluding Mm. that, after all, the mother side of Norman, with all its potential for cross-gender, homosexualizing, or queering of his character, is watching these women too. So if we think about the end of the film when the psychiatrist says basically wasn't norman yes! most of the time he was mother so this is mother watching marion get undressed which makes it queer desire okay no i'm sorry i i, I yeah. so everyone the, the line at the end of the film from the psychiatrist is he was never all norman mm-hmm. he was frequently only all mother, mother. Yep. yes exactly and so like that that doesn't that recontextualize so many of the scenes in the film Hmm. Yeah. So in a way, well, I don't know that it makes it better because it moves it from transphobic oh, to sure. maybe just lesbian phobic. But sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it does reshape the way that you're meant to look at the mother character. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly enough, Columbo Machado has a third option, oh. which is 
Norman looking at Marion from a transgender perspective, desiring not her, but what she represents, which is femininity. So in this way, it's this is what I covet. This is what I wish to be. So if you do want to look at Norman (laughs) as a pre-transition trans person, then this is them saying, I'm uncomfortable with my body and that is what I wish to be. So... I've never heard that reading before, and I actually really, really like that reading. The only issue I have is that I think that would make more sense if he was possessed by his mother. Like, it was actually his mother in his body. But it's a product of his mind. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that any of the readings are unproblematic or that they remove a kind of queer stigma that the film seems to invite. Right. We'll talk about the psychiatrist kind of explanation and how audiences seem to overlook it deliberately or subconsciously. But even if you wanted to acknowledge that, you know, maybe Norman is secretly a trans woman and he looks at Marion and says, that's what I wish, you know. Right. I can't have that. I'm going to kill you. Ah. Well, it lends itself to the Ed Gein of it all, right? Because some people look at Ed Gein as, oh, well, he wanted to wear mother's skin because he wanted to keep her alive. But some people say, oh, you know, he was sexually uncertain, gender nonconforming. Maybe he was doing that stuff. That's where transvesticism used as a term to describe a mental illness. Yeah. That's where that... It's problem rate. Yeah, yeah, yes. But again, this is also like media literacy is important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I get why Psycho is under fire a lot because, oh, yes, we are having a man dressed in women's clothes is monstrous. Like the the mere idea of that is horrifying when it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. I get that. But the movie and also any... In the 60 years since its release, like, you can read so much more into it than just man and woman's clothes equals monster. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on to that because we'll we'll have a conversation okay. at the okay. end. But okay. Got yeah, it. Got it. that to me is more the legacy of the film. For sure. 100%. Okay. So important to note that after this voyeurism scene before Marion gets in the shower, she has written herself a note about, like, basically finances, how much money okay, wait, she wait, has and wait, hasn't spent. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I love that she has to write out the math. For $40,000 minus $700 equals (laughs) $39,300. It does feel a little bit like a contrivance from Stefano to say, okay, well, if we do this, then we can have Lila discover. No, she's a woman. She can't do math. She's a slut. (laughs) She's a slut who can't do math. She's a slut who can't do math. (laughs) God. I hope folks understand when we say things like that, that's a reference to Clueless, right? They get uh, that? <laughs> it is a reference to Clueless. It is also sarcasm. It is not <laughs> Roseanne Barr saying that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to cut that. <laughs> or bleep it. <laughs> bleep it, yes. Okay. Uh, Trace, the moment has come. Marion gets in the shower. I'm at a loss, Joe, because truthfully, I don't know what else to say about this scene that hasn't already been said, except for the fact that this is... It's masterful. This is yeah, master. This is masterful. This is such a good scene. And just like when you start to dig into it, I mean, you referenced the documentary, which I'm sure probably has 
countless interesting little details. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my takeaway from this 90 minute doc on the psycho disc was they built a specialty shower head so that they could have a shot that looks directly into the water without getting the water on the camera. Like the attention to detail is just wild to me it, it, it is and again because I, uh, I remember when i first saw this the the tcm viewing that i videotaped of my own accord mm-hmm. you know there'd be like little breaks in between for um the, the host guy to talk about stuff and i remember him i remember right. him saying it wasn't janet lee in that shower scene and so right. for so much of my child uh, teenagers i was like that's not really janet lee in the shower even when she's screaming i didn't think it was actually her oh okay that is her. And when, it is you her. See, when you see her face, it is her. Yes. But bear in mind, as Joe said earlier, it took them seven days to film this. Janet Lee was working on this film for three weeks, and mm-hmm. one third of her production time was this fucking scene. It's wild. And apparently she was wearing nude mole skin to kind of cover yeah. up the parts because obviously you couldn't wear much else or else it would show on camera. There's just a ton of really interesting production details about this, just the way that Hitch moves the camera, you know, obviously the down the drain water sequence to then twirling away and out from her eye. It's just it's all so good. Well, And that's the thing. So the documentary is called 7852. And that is supposed to stand for 78 shots with 52 cuts. But here's the thing. Oof. Even that number is disputed among right. academics and scholars. Like, they, no one really knows the correct number of shots and cuts in this scene, which mm. is really funny. You're like, well, can't you just, like, fucking, like, watch it and slow it down? But <laughs> There's so many <laughs> in such a short amount of time. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, yeah, it's the use of jump cuts, because I, I don't think we talk about jump cuts a ton on this podcast, Mm-mm. but in case y'all don't know, a jump cut is a, is a cut from shot to shot. The, the second shot doesn't match continuity of the first shot. You're like, oh, shit, like, it's meant to disorient you. Mm-hmm. And this shower scene uses many jump cuts to disorient you and it's again like we said earlier it makes you think you are seeing things that you are not seeing you are mm-hmm. hearing the knife enter her flesh but you never see it except for arguably one shot by her belly button right yes the other interesting thing of course which i feel like is relatively common knowledge but that's not anthony perkins in any mm. of the shots where Correct. we see mother stabbing which i think is kind of wild right like i would have thought we'd at least have a little bit of him in the dress in the wig but no these are you know there's perkins's stand-in oh, no, and no, then no. they also have a woman it's yes yeah, so here oh okay let me add this to so i did learn this from 7852 they had the double for anthony mm-hmm. perkins standing in and it, i think it was mostly a woman for most of this but the problem is they couldn't get the lighting right to where it wasn't plainly visible that it wasn't anthony perkins in this oh, okay wig and outfit so they essentially, <laughs> they say they darkened her face with makeup. And in my oh, mind, I'm like, that's blackface. <laughs> yep. yep, it definitely is. <laughs> but again, that's what they did. To, 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 so again, you're not just seeing lighting, uh, hiding, quote unquote, mother's face. It actually is makeup to cover to make her face look blacker. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting um yeah i mean what else can we say joe this is fantastic this is great and i kudos to janet lee too because the shot you know the iconic shot of you know the transition from the drain to her eye the camera's doing this rotation thing Mm -hmm. this is the scene too when you're watching in 7852 because they interview the um 
the editors and the, sh- and the cinematographer of uh, of the remake, the Ghost of Saint remake. And right. they're like, you know, we watched the shower scene and we were like, we cannot figure some of this out. And it doesn't work as well. And we <laughs> left it at that because it didn't work as well and we couldn't get it to work as well. Yeah. This is a film from 1960 yeah. that contemporary filmmaking practices could not replicate. It's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's, just, it's fascinating to me. I, I love this scene. Uh, funnily enough, the, the scene was not accompanied with score the first time they screened this. And Hitchcock didn't want score on this scene. Hmm. And Bernard Herrmann was like, mm, can you let me uh, just put something in real quick? <laughs> let me do a Tim. Come on, just give me a shot here. <laughs> and he did. And he was like, oh, wow, yeah, that does work a lot better. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you imagine? Yeah, and the final thing that we'll say about this is, yes, we know Janet Lee famously did not take showers after watching this because it made her realize how vulnerable she was. I don't know if I believe that, to be honest. I, I, I have heard that since I was a little babe, and I don't think I believe that. But look, all I'm saying is that her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, learned how to do press from somewhere, and I think that her mother taught her well. I think so, too. Oh, oh God. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is not in this documentary very much, but she does pop up at the end because she does an homage to Psycho. Um, She's in the shower in black and white, and basically the Red Devil in that show, like, you know, opens it. And she punches him and goes, I've seen this movie like 50 times. And Mm -hmm. it's not As a person who who likes Scream Queens, this is not funny. No, it's too obvious. Well, but the funny thing is, before talking about this, she's like, look, I have been asked hundreds of times to redo this shower scene. I'm like, no, like, that's my that's my that's mother's my legacy. <laughs> Why would I step on this? But it's really funny because this documentary came out in 2017. She's like, you know, my mother's been dead for seven uh, for 10 years now. And I'm like, so now it's OK. <laughs> You know what? Mom's been in the grand for a decade, so I thought, why not? It was just really fun. I mean, here's the thing. It's it's a fine little gimmick. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but I'm very much like, eh, like, Eh. I know what you're doing, show. It's fine. (laughs) It's not the best joke that show has. No, it's not the best show. And that show has many good jokes. Sure. (laughs) You know what? I proposed rewatching it with you, and then you went ahead and watched it with your husband as well. I watched... Two episodes of my husband. I told you to watch it on your own because you don't have to make a podcast out of everything. That is true. That is fair. You know what? <laughs> okay. 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 So so then, okay, here's the thing. We have 12 minutes, 12 mm-hmm. minutes of Norman cleaning up this murder. It's so long. And it should be really boring because there's no dialogue. It's no. him. Well, I mean, there's him discovering what mother has done and freaking out and then i think mother says some things but it's mostly just anthony perkins going about wrapping this body up in the shower curtain putting the body into the trunk of her car and then dumping it into the swamp yeah and it's super engrossing isn't that what makes it engrossing for you i'm curious like what is your answer i I don't have an answer for this question i I agree it's engrossing but what is your answer (laughs) I'll confess a part of it is seeing how he reacts under duress. Like, he is obviously not prepared for this moment. And yet, at the same time, you get the impression, like, he doesn't have to stop and think too much about it. You know, he spots the plastic shower curtain. He lays it out. He gets the body down. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it tells us a lot of vital information about who Norman is, but maybe also what he's had to do in the past. And I like how it anticipates what we'll learn from the sheriff later. I was actually a little curious, too. um, How many times do you think something like this has happened? 
Well, according to Bates Motel, many times. <laughs> no, I would say, I mean, from what the movie tells us, he probably did it a couple times. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, he only has that one swamp, and there's not a lot of room in there. Well, but we are told that at least two young women have gone missing. That's true. So that Marianne's number three. Yeah, well, and maybe his mom, but maybe. oh no, I guess the police discovered the bodies before he could oh, do away with them. I'm sorry. I also, we forgot to mention, so there is a repeated reference to the fact that the highway used to run by the Bates Motel, but mm. ever since they moved it, he has no business, which is why he can get away with his murders. Right. If you've ever seen the TV show Bates Motel, which by the way, mostly good. It's fine. Yeah. The last two seasons are great. Yes. The first Two are the middle one's fine, but there's a whole season long arc mm-hmm. <laughs> about this goddamn highway being moved. Oh my God. The number of times that they mention the fucking highway, <laughs> you're just like, oh boy, this better be leading to a good payoff. Newsflash: it it's literally exactly what you think. It's oh okay, I can get away with murder because the highway keeps moving. <laughs> no, l- literally, once it stops being like, oh yeah, yeah we've got to build up Norman and his mom, and they're oh, yeah. once Norman starts killing people, that's when mm-hmm. the show gets good. <laughs> But but the whole season, I was like, why the fuck does anyone care about this goddamn highway thing? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, right, because it's mentioned like five times in Psycho. Yeah, it's very, very true. Uh, One final plug for the TV show. One of my favorite things that they do is in that final season, they start to really pay off all the things to Psycho because obviously we're leading up to and crossing into the film. So Rihanna is Marion Crane. And I love the way that they do that episode because you think you know what they're going to do based on what the film does, and they don't. And I will say no more except to say it is well worth seeking out. I would completely agree with you. Um, Everyone, again, seasons four and five of that show are legitimately great. That final season is as Mm -hmm. perfect as it could be, I think. Right. And I really like Emma Cook, and Freddie Highmore is great, and Vera Farmiga is good even when she's fucking dead on that show. Oh, Okay, you know what? Fuck it. Sorry, y'all. Spoiler alert. Uh, Vera Farmiga dies at the end of season four, and she is completely, like, in Norman's mind for, mm-hmm. like, which, remember the marketing for that fifth season where it was just Norman sitting with her corpse? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they had some really good marketing, like, good art for that show. Yeah, 100%. The problem is, y'all, you have to get past the first two seasons. <laughs> oh, my God. And I cannot stand that brother. Oof. Oh, uh, I don't I mean, he's hot, but I don't like him. I yeah, Max Therio is very hot. He got new teeth for that show somehow. But um, hmm. pretty to look at dud of a character. Yeah, dull as dishwater. Oof. Yeah, 100% agree with you. Okay, so Trace, we have hit the hour mark, which means that we are allowed to return to Sam and introduce Lila Crane, who is played by Vera Miles. And simultaneously, because it's like, oh, the movie needs to reboot, we're also introducing private investigator Milton Arbogast, who is played by Martin Balsam. All right. So speaking of reboot, so this is what I was saying earlier. Does the film regain its momentum for you or does it never quite match anything up until that shower scene? Wow. What a leading question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I do struggle a little bit with the back half especially with some of the Sam and Lila stuff, because they just don't feel as fully fleshed out. But it's not a situation where it feels like, oh, God, I'm waiting for this movie to fully reboot. It just means that I enjoy the Norman stuff more. I agree. I will say so. And I think it was in the making of documentary on that Blu-ray where they mention 
because they were approaching the two hour mark of this runtime for the movie. Right. And <laughs> they were like, we need to cut something. And they couldn't figure out a scene to cut that like wasn't going to sacrifice anything. Right. The scene they did cut was a scene between Sam and Lila post mm-hmm. learning about Marion's death. So it must have been again, it's at the very end of the film before the psychiatrist comes in. Right. Where both Sam and Lila like commiserate about, oh, we've both lost someone that we've loved. Mm-hmm. I want to see it, but I can understand why it would have been cut for pacing. A hundred percent. I think by that point in the film, I don't know if we it's need it, but it would have been nice to have had something like that beforehand. Yeah, because even their scenes, for the most part, in the back half of this film, like, basically, Lila is introduced, and she's more or less the same as Arbogast. Like, she's a private investigator, except she doesn't have the title. But her whole purpose is, I'm here for Marion, where's Marion, where's my sister, we gotta go find her, let's go talk to people. And I think it's good, but she and Sam don't really get that moment of emotional intimacy, apart from, like, very brief limited lines of dialogue you know i'm really concerned about marion i just need to find her i don't care about the money yeah and maybe that's my thing is it lila at least we've seen sam before this lila mm-hmm. we have no connection to her like she's that, been yeah. mentioned but we've never even seen her well and and the, the other problem is the for the last half of the film we spend a, a half of that half with arbogast yeah it's true so again look this is a five-star film for me purely on a technical level Mm -hmm. the structure of it that my issue is yeah i I like lila because i like marion i don't like lila because of anything the script is giving me with lila right i will say i think vera miles is doing oh yeah good work with what she Mm -hmm. can but at the end of the day like sam and lila are just not fully developed characters exactly well maybe it's because too they don't have a conflict you know Mm marion has like an ethical or moral conflict where we're like oh yeah i I relate to this. Right. Sam and Lila, she's like, let's find Marion. And we, we, as the audience, know that this bitch is dead. I'm sorry, yeah. this slut is dead. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Look, she can't do math, and she's dead. <laughs> oh, awful. Okay, so we do get a brief montage as Arbogast goes to all these various hotels, motels, and then he finally yep. makes his way to the Bates Motel. So... Now we get to see what Norman looks like when he is put under questioning. And just like Marion, he really fucking sucks. I mean, honestly, I think that's the biggest tragedy for me is I feel like Marion and Norman would have made a great couple. Oh, well, yes. And some people have said, you know, if you want to read Norman as heterosexual, it's like they were actually perfect for each other. And I think a lot of other folks who do subscribe to a more traditional queer reading of Norman look at these two as almost like shadow figures of one another. Mm -hmm. Like the movie does have a big thing with doubling where even Norman and Sam kind of look similar to each other. Yeah, no, that's true. Tall, dark and handsome. I'm sorry, tall, dark haired and handsome. (laughs) <laughs> yes no blackface except for that shower sequence <laughs> except for the doubles <laughs> so um yeah it is really fun watching anthony perkins do a completely different type of performance he wasn't confident when he was interacting with marion but he is extremely uncomfortable talking to arbogast so he doesn't look at the picture it's like classic 101 what not to do when uh-huh. being interrogated like here's the picture have you seen this person i'm not even looking at it and i'm already saying no i i have in my notes norman is a terrible liar <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So interesting, apparently Norman chewing candy or eating candy throughout most of his scenes was Anthony Perkins' decision. It was a character-based thing he wanted to do. Sure. The stuttering, no one is quite sure whose suggestion it was, but some people have said, huh, considering Hitchcock's interest in queer villains in so many of his movies, some people look at this as, oh, is this kind of a nod to Rope? Oh, right. Because that fucker also stutters mm-hmm. when he when he thinks he's about to. Well, sorry, the whole movie he thinks he's about to get caught, but yes. <laughs> he stutters throughout a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, before he leaves, Arvagast does spot Mother. So this is another instance where we're actively seeing, and the movie is telling us, "Hey, there is another character out there. You're just not interacting with her." And Arvagast says, "Oh, okay. Like I basically know that Marion was here. I know that you're lying because you're a terrible liar at this. But also, can I speak to your mother? Because I think that that maybe has something to do with it." No. No. so uh bringing back Dottie, Dottie says this brief exchange is riddled with sexuality related gender tensions Mm -hmm. even though he apologizes to norman it's clear to both norman and the viewer that arbogast is indeed trying to slur norman's manhood with his insinuations Uh, and we know that there's nothing a man hates more than having his manhood or masculinity questioned Well, and I I think if you want to be extremely stereotypical and a little bit boring, like (laughs) the reality is, is that even in 1960, I think that audiences would have picked up on maybe not a fully queer read of Norman as a character, Uh but they would have seen him as effeminate or feminized because he is foolish, unperceptive, gullible, weak. You know, he's not masculine. He's not commanding. He's not in control. Yes. Okay. So I, I, I only hesitated because I was thinking. I was like, well, he is in control. But at this point, because I feel like at this point we do think, well, maybe not. You know, It's I'm getting sorry. away from him, I think. Yeah, I guess because at this point we don't know that Norman is mother, that Norman and mother are the same fucking person. But I guess mm-hmm. I guess but I he's guess. still covering for the murder. Right, right, right. Because at this point we think mother is a separate character. So he is bowing to the whims of mother. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if you want to read gender roles into the relationship he has with mother, mother is masculine in control, whereas Norman, despite being a man, man. is weaker and less in control. For sure. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Okay, so... Another great little character beat is when Arbogast drives away to give Lila the update on the telephone, and we see Norman in what I can only read as the mother persona, and he just has this little smile. Uh, so do you think it's like it's like she's like, I'm going to fucking murder I'm going to fucking kill that guy. <laughs> <laughs> if he comes back, he's dead. Uh, well, comes back, he does. Indeed, yeah. So I do love the scene where we watch him call Lila so that the film literally says, this is how other characters will know to come to the Bates Motel later. (laughs) And then Arbogas goes back and is killed at the house by mother. So, I mean, again, it's like, what more can we say about this particular sequence that hasn't already been said, but... I just love the way that they filmed him falling down the stairs. Yeah. You know, when you look at it now, you think, oh, it's janky. It doesn't really work. Like, I can see what they're doing. It's like bad rear projection. It's not, by the way. But- well, it's intentional. It's it, it, it's meant to look this way. I, I will mm-hmm. say it does look worse in that remake. Um, It's uh, William H. Macy playing Arbogast. And- oh, right. Yeah. 
but they also add him like screaming during the fall and it almost undercuts Hmm. the shot yeah but i I agree even when i was fucking 12 years old watching the original film i was like well that doesn't look very real like Mm -hmm. (laughs) like he's like you hear his feet on the stairs like hitting them as he's falling but Based on the the motion that he has, it's like, no, it looks like he's gliding down these stairs. He's not stumbling. But at the same time, I almost feel like it it makes it more unsettling because the visual that we are seeing is not matching the sounds. Yeah, there's something unnatural about it. And it's so distinct that it becomes memorable. And it's also, you know, it's following this moment of what I consider to be genuinely fantastic horror. Like the overhead shot of mother just yeah. suddenly uh-huh. bursting out of that bedroom to me is tantamount to Leatherface coming out of the house. Well, and let's, I mean, like, we're reusing the same score that we've already heard before, mm-hmm. which could be seen as lazy, but it's like, well, if you've got a thing that works, why are you fucking going to get rid of it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but also even just like, like once he falls he's on the ground, like I just love it. You know, we just have this shot of just like the knife coming up and down mm-hmm. and up and down this is the slashery aspect Slasher. that I, I actually view this as more i mean look i'm not saying this is lowbrow but i view this as more lowbrow than the the shower scene because this seems more gratuitous in a way and more conventional like more in line with the kinds of murders that we would see in horror films like uh-huh. obviously not at this point in 1960, this was still very novel, but, you know, this will definitely set the kind of precedent that we will come to expect from countless other horror films. Yep, and they'll just show us a lot more blood and a lot more entry wounds. Yeah, actually, I think that's the other reason I like the way that his fall down the stairs goes is because I've seen so many other lesser films where you just watch somebody take a tumble. Well, that's the interesting thing, too. You know, I mean, like people are like, oh, like Psycho has been like ripped off so many times. And Mm -hmm. one thing that 7852 documentary does that I really appreciate is they just show all these shower scenes from movies that are ripping off Psycho. (laughs) Oh, really? That's too funny. And it's like a full minute long sequence of just seeing all these shower scenes. Yeah, which in a way, you know, obviously we're paying homage. We're appreciating what Hitchcock has done with the film. But also, I kind of like the idea, sort of, of people trying to do their take on this very familiar, very famous property. Now, I say that because (laughs) you and I are like pimping out a Patreon episode that we have not yet recorded because I feel like we're both itching to get to it. Uh But I will say I'm also getting sick and tired of people just going back to the same well and saying like, oh, that famous shot, I'm going to replicate it in my own film. And it's like, I understand why it's tempting to do it, and I feel like sometimes it works out really well, but a lot of the time I'm just like, I don't need to see your take on this famous thing because I just want to watch the original that did it better. I think for me, and I'll use the remake as an example, but I really mean this for kind of all of horror. If... <laughs> oh, okay. Just a broad generalization. No, 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 <laughs> but, but, because here's the thing. The shower scene was shocking in 1960 so Mm -hmm. if you were wanting to re-replicate the shower scene for a 2023 audience let's say right you have to find what is as shocking in 2023 on the same level as how that shower scene was as shocking in 1960 Mm -hmm. and so it may not be a shower scene but the problem is maybe i'm digging in hot water here but it's like (laughs) it might delve into bad taste or offensiveness and that is something that a lot of people don't want to do right now 
Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons that people end up disliking things like slasher films mm. is when we get to the 80s, a lot of filmmakers just kind of take the wrong lessons and they say, oh, well, in order to do this, but do it bigger, badder, more memorable, it means I have to be more gratuitous. I have to have tits out and see right. the knife go into them or that kind of stuff. And it's I don't know that that's the lesson we need to no, learn either. No, the lesson that was learned from this is, oh, have a woman take her clothes off and then have her get killed. And <laughs> right. that's not the lesson we should take from this. It's no. just like find another way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying don't be offensive. Honestly, sometimes maybe you should offend. Whatever. Well, I mean, you love offensive, so I, I, <laughs> you'll probably I say do. that. I do. But Psycho walks that fine line. It was offending critics. It wasn't offending mm-hmm. audiences. Oh, yeah, that is true. I mean, the reactions were apparently amazing. Like, there were yeah. people who walked out during the shower sequence, but it wasn't because they thought it was in poor taste. It's because they were so fucking scared. Well, no, th- th- there are, like, quotes where it's like, oh, people are walking out as if it was a roller coaster of a ride. Right? And the funny thing is, if you show a modern audience member Psycho 1960 right now, they are not going to describe this movie as a roller coaster thrill ride. No, of course not. But that's the difference that, you know, 63 years make. But that's what I'm saying, though. You have to find the 2023 equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. So no. good luck, contemporary filmmakers. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's only going to get more difficult as the years go by. Well, or don't try to find the thing that's going to shock people. Make a good movie and look for something that is going to augment your particular product. Well, or, or all of the above. Shock people and make something good. <laughs> okay, well, now you've given them double the homework. I'm just saying. Like, it's, just I'm not saying, saying it's easy. It's not easy, but like, well, I want to say it was easier in 1960. But as we have learned, this was not an easy film or a sh- scene to make. No, not at all. <laughs> so anyway, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so Arbogast is dead, and that means he does not call back. So Sam and Lila immediately take notice because, as Lila says, he seemed to like me. I don't think he would have just chased the money. So Sam ends up going to the motel. He sees Mother. He tries to knock on the door. Nobody answers, so okay. This is where Lila really starts to take over the investigatory nature of because it makes sense right the pi is dead so somebody has to take over the investigation and that is lila because it's not sam so she ends up taking on it's almost like this persona right like we have the lawmaker or the people who are going to bring justice to the proceedings and when we lose someone like arbogast we have lila who steps in but that also means that in some ways she's this authoritarian figure or she's taking on a traditionally masculine role. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. So I have seen some people say like, oh, you know, Lila doesn't seem particularly interested in Sam. She doesn't seem to have any sexual predilections, <laughs> but she does have these masculine-like features in terms of the way she acts. Which is interesting, though, because the remake will emphasize those qualities further. I, I, mm-hmm. I wonder if it's just like a, a time period thing, right? Where it's like, well, we can't have Lila be too commandeering because that's Sam's job. Yeah. Also, she can't be butch because heaven forbid, we need to have her Julianne Moore <laughs> with her model, perfect, beautiful hair. My God, Julianne Moore's introduction in that remake, she like walks into Sam's store wearing like a Walkman and she's like, I'm listening to edgy music. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, at least she doesn't walk in with like a fan blowing the hair out. That's true. <laughs> All right. So Lila is driving this investigation. That means that she takes Sam in the middle of the night to go and visit Sheriff Chambers, who is played by John (laughs) Mac. 
I guess it's McIntyre. That's an interesting spelling. As well as his wife, Lorraine Tuttle, who I actually really like the wife. I do too. Um, She's got a sweet and fun and no nonsense. It's funny because this wife in the remake is played by this woman who, oh God, her name is Anne Haney, but she's like the landlord lady in Mrs. Doubtfire when Robin Williams like buries his face in the pie. Oh, oh, her. Yeah, she always shows up as like a social worker or something. Yes, in in Liar Liar, she's Jim Carrey's assistant, um, who's like a social worker type plate. But no, 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 yeah, no, for for sure. Uh, This this woman is like, I'm like, she's just trying to go to bed. But you know what? She's being a real good Samaritan. Yeah, because her husband clearly does not give a fuck about what's going on. He's like, "Mm, it's the middle of the night. Why are you bothering me? And his wife is... Well, uh, they're looking for someone who's missing, and there might be murder involved, dear. (laughs) Well, I love, too, it takes them a good few minutes for them to be like, wait, you mentioned his mother? Mm -hmm. That bitch dead! Oh, 100%. Yeah, we're dropping it, and then having a full-on side conversation, and then coming back with a, oh, we buried the lead. Norman murdered his mom and her lover. She's been dead for a while. So well, wait, if you're saying she's still alive, then who's buried in the cemetery? Okay, wait, hold on. They don't know Norman murdered them. They think that the mom did a murder-suicide. This is true, yes. Also, the idea of doing a murder-suicide. Doing a murder. How bizarre. Here, my question is this. No one knew that this grave was exhumed? So... He didn't ever bury Mother, because they say later he did a weighted coffin. Oh, so he, I missed that. he was on that body from the jump. She never went in the ground. That Doesn't that complicate the psychosis of it all? Like, it, <laughs> I, I, Here's the thing. If you're looking at this through a mental health perspective, it's far too complicated what Norman has. And actually, here, I'll, I'll jump. Go ahead. I'll jump to Harmony's uh, contribution to the conversation. So... In her piece, Harmony Colangelo says, Norman himself is extremely easy to process. He has dissociative personality disorder and is in the middle of a mental breakdown. Cut and dry. That is it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, look, am I expecting 2023 medicine knowledge, (laughs) medicinal knowledge, like in a 1960 film? No. Especially one that is quote-unquote a lowbrow b movie i guess like Mm -hmm. no not at all well it's important to note too that you know psychology was very much taking off in the public consciousness right like the idea of seeing a therapist giving weight and credence to what the psychiatric field was saying so that combined with being queer was still illegal but also this kind of pop culture psychology i think was starting to gain new ground yeah and it's also a thing too where i'm like well if psycho wasn't as popular as it was and wasn't like the cinematic landmark that it was would anyone really care that much I mean, no, because we only really care about popular things. Exactly. <laughs> Which, I mean, look, I, I get why. I get why. And we'll talk about it more at the end. We'll talk about, well, what did the public take away from this film? Right. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, yeah, but like, that's not the movie's fault. I mean, well, to an extent, it's the movie's fault. But like, it's not yeah. the movie's fault. <laughs> it's the movie did some bad things. And then we furthered the bad things by doing more bad things. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so Norman has enough wherewithal to realize that with Arbogast, murder someone will probably come calling so he then takes mother to the fruit cellar the fruit cellar trace i i do you think i'm fruity eh? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so is it a big suspension of disbelief for you by the end of the film to know that this is Norman doing his mother's voice? Uh, like a suspension of disbelief? It feels more like the film is externalizing something to help us as an audience understand, but it is also some tomfoolery on the film's behalf where it's like, okay, so he's doing this for whose benefit except his ORs. Okay. That's the thing. I mean, look, I get it. I get why this is all the way it is. I almost would have preferred to have it actually be Anthony Perkins doing this voice. Uh, I'll, I'll confess, I thought for the longest time it was him doing a woman's voice and that it I didn't realize there was a different voice actress for it. <laughs> Honestly, if they would have told people that and just stuck with it, that would have been flown, a smart right? move. But I guess you got to credit that actress, so. Yeah. So here's the thing that I do like about this moment is that the movie pulls the rug out from under us by saying, oh my God, mother has been dead this whole time. So we've got this brand new mystery, but we as an audience are like, wait, what? And then in the very next scene, we hear her talking. So it's like, okay, it's such a good distraction from what we kind of already know is the truth, but the film makes us well, continue to believe the lie but see though that's where like the cultural ideology of the time where i'm like i wonder if the mere idea of a man dressing up as a woman was so like we won't see mm -hmm. that in a movie no i'm sure it never crossed anyone's mind but that's what i'm saying i think that's why it works and why rewatching it today where i'm like it is so impossible to divorce myself from all the knowledge i've learned about this movie in my 34 years of life mm -hmm. but to where i'm like this wouldn't play today because right. it's so obvious. Yeah, we would immediately latch on to the idea. Like you, the subversion would be to make us think that it was a man dressing in women's clothing, and then reveal that it wasn't actually that. A hundred percent. But at the time, I don't think any audience member would have walked into this movie, and even at this point in the film, have been like, "Oh, well, yeah, Norman's dressing up as his mother." Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. When I listened to Sister Hyde guest star on Scarred for Life with mm -hmm. uh, Terry Menard and Mary Beth, she mentioned that apparently the killer man in a woman's outfit had been done once before this, and it was by Alfred Hitchcock back in the 30s. Oh, <laughs> isn't that funny, though? Because we're like, oh, well, wouldn't they have known about that? A, no home video. Mm -hmm. B, how many um, youngins nowadays look at films from 30 years ago? I think it's more like, oh, this was the second attempt at what oh. he'd already done as a dry run. Okay, got it, got it, got it. So, oh, so he was like, I'm going to get it right this time. <laughs> or it worked once, so I can do it again. Yeah, okay, that's fair, that's fair. All this to say, Sam and Lila decide, okay, when Sheriff Chambers comes up with nothing, I'm also always surprised that we don't get to see the scene of Sheriff Chambers going and interacting with Norman or searching the house or anything. We just cut directly to church the next day. He's found nothing, so Sam and Lila decide they are going to go undercover as a married couple so that they can search the premises. I'm always surprised because this, to me, should take up the entire third act of the film, but it's like the last 15 minutes of the movie. It's true, yeah. I paused so I could go to the bathroom, and when I came back, I realized, oh, I think I've got under 15 minutes left yeah, in no, this movie. The movie is almost over by this point. Well, I think it helps to kind of build the tension in some ways, right? Like we've played this drawn out cat and mouse game. We've already killed off two people who have come into Norman's orbit, but he's losing control. So there comes a certain point where it's just going to fall apart. And this is it, right? Like he can't keep the charade up any longer. 
Oh, a hundred percent. So I love to, so, you know, like once Lila and Sam get here, you know, they, they meet Norman, they are like, all right, we're going to go to cabin 10, but let's look at all these rooms. Mm -hmm. Well, they look at the ledger and they recognize Marion's handwriting, even though it's under a different name and they see that she was there, but also where was the last room that was used one. But like, okay, so they get into cabin number one. And Lila finds, thankfully, this piece of paper that has somehow not molded in the past, like, two weeks since Marion mm-hmm. stayed there. And she's like, oh, my God, this proves Marion stayed here. And Sam's like, well, yeah, it's stupid bitch. We know she stayed here. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean that she died here, that her body is here somewhere. Well, I will say, though, that's where the remake fumbles, because the problem is that Lila is, like, such a force in that remake. Right. That this scene which plays exactly the same, Mm -hmm. makes her look very fucking stupid. Ooh, okay. Hmm. Whereas in here, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, well, she's just a woman in the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) She's a woman in the 60s who can't do math. She doesn't know her place. (laughs) Okay, so at this point, interestingly enough, another sort of gender subversion. Uh Sam is the one who has to stay and try to distract Norman while Lila will be the one who will go and search the house. And Columbo Machado says, this is an interesting subversion, not just because of what it says about like Sam and Lila, but also here's, here's another interesting read. Columbo Machado is good for these. Okay. Norman's house symbolizes the closet where Norman keeps his mother and his female persona. Uh In her investigation, Lila barges into his closet to bring to light what he keeps hidden, which is tantamount to outing Norman. So Lila becomes a transphobic element in the narrative. No, stop laughing and actually listen to what she's saying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So Lila becomes a transphobic element in the narrative as she works towards bringing Norman into the normative system to be judged and prosecuted. I guess uh, my issue with things like this is always like, but it's not her intention. Well, it doesn't matter about intention. Yeah, I know. It's just a read. Just a read. But do you read Lila as transphobic in this read? We had to remember that Columbo Machado's reading is that Norman is a trans woman. Right, right, right. So you could look at it just as Lila is truth seeking and she's going to, however you read Norman, she's going to expose him. But if you read him as queer, then effectively she is looking to out him to the public. Not intentionally, because she doesn't know what she's going to find, but she is looking to find what he is hiding. So I I get this. I get this reading. But her sister is dead <laughs> mm-hmm. well she doesn't know that yet well i i know but she's willing to do whatever I, I, I guess that's the moral dilemma right let's look at this through a 2023 lens you are willing to do whatever it takes to either find your sister or figure out what happened to her or whatever and that includes outing a queer person mm-hmm. it's just a, it's an interesting again alternative way of looking at this because yeah Obviously, Lila's intention is to go in and find her fucking sister because now she knows she was here. So what's in that house? I want to talk to mom. Mm -hmm. But in a way, because of who is living in the house and what the secrets it's hiding is she is unintentionally going to bring these things to light. Man, should we get canceled today? (laughs) God. Okay, I'm moving on. So. Sam is distracting Norman very badly. Everyone sucks at their jobs in this movie because he just gets hit in the head almost immediately. Well, but but I actually appreciate this because, again, going back to what you were saying earlier about how it's the gender flip, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's Sam who has to distract him and Marion goes to do it. 
At least for now, he'll get to play the hero in the yeah, end. Yeah, he plays a hero. But, but, but nevertheless, though, like, well, okay, then on the flip side of that, would you view Lila as a damsel in distress during this climax? In the end, yes. But okay. it's very brief. Like, it's not a sustained kind of drawn out thing where she's like hanging over a crevice or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a quick like, oh, my God, there's a corpse here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's the one who's finding everything because, yeah, like she goes down into the fruit cellar. She finds mother. We've got this great shot of her freaking the fuck out, hitting the swinging light bulb. It's all good stuff. But, you know, there's barely a moment to even pause and reconcile with what we've seen before Norman is storming in as mother with the knife. Does it ever like surprise you how easily this rocking chair turns around? I mean, I I did appreciate learning that they apparently had somebody lying on their stomach to turn the chair so that it would, That's you good. know, come right at the correct moment. Um, I will say, though, one thing I never noticed on previous watches that I noticed in this one was um, Norman. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I have you to thank for this, Joe. Hmm. Subtitles. Uh, oh. Norman screams, I am Norma Bates when sam grabs him but we don't hear it because of the score but he yeah. very much says it in the subtitles re reaffirm this once he's going down so that's interesting because i looked i actually rewound it because i'd never mm -hmm. noticed that before either it shows up on the subtitles and i'm not convinced that it actually gets said it felt like a weird almost adr moment well no it's adr because it's not anthony perkins saying it it's oh. it, it's it's the actress that voices norma bates saying it so but anthony perkins doesn't move his like he doesn't yeah. say it does he well it, it's happening when he's being brought down mm. by sam and so okay. you could argue oh like he's moving so like but i just i i, I never noticed that before and no. the remake does not do that Oh, really? Mm -hmm. oh, that is mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, in some ways, you could look at this as something that doesn't actually need to be in there. Like, I don't think we as an audience have any... There's no mystery. There's no confusion as to what is happening in this moment. No, no. But here's the thing, though. So originally, again, this is a scene that didn't have score accompanying it. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. And so without that score, you would hear this. Hmm. It was after the score was added that it kind of becomes unintelligible almost. But again, like it's one of those things like when you see the subtitle, like your, your ears perk up and you're like, wait, am mm -hmm. I hearing this? And you will hear it. You will hear it. Okay. That is interesting. Do you think it's necessary, though? I mean, part of it is just I think the score um, works so well, like I couldn't imagine not having it there. So that's unfortunate that it's, you know, we're hearing the score too loudly and it muffles the dialogue. But I also just don't think we need that statement. Well, so that is a perfect segue into this psychologist sequence then, because mm -hmm. I think that what that line does, and here's the thing, I don't even mind. I think it's fine. Okay. But... I think what that line does is it spells something out for you that should already like, what well, you're already putting together in your head as you're watching it. And right. a lot of the critiques of this psychiatry scene is why the fuck is this in here? We're <laughs> smart. We get it. <laughs> what? You mean you don't like your movies to end with a giant exposition dump? Joe, this might be controversial. I don't mind this psychiatrist scene. I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I I can understand why some people would say oh you know yeah we don't need it sugar-coated for us because we can figure it out we're smart people i think in some regards well and you know what here let's talk about it because we've been sure. referencing it and then saying no we'll put it off until the end the whole time here we are 
I think a large portion of people deliberately don't pay attention to this sequence and they yes. take the wrong meaning away. <laughs> but, 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 but that's the that's the thing, right? Like, okay, look. Is this sequence way – it's just – It's a little dumb audience members, this is what's going on. <laughs> yeah. That's what this is doing. But as we have seen in the transphobic legacy mm. of this film, mm. some people might need these things spelled out to them. And even <laughs> when they are spelled out to them, they still take away the wrong things from the scene. Yeah. So we have psychiatrist Dr. Richmond, who is played by Simon Oakland, who basically walks us through what has gone on with Norman. So Norman killed his mother and her new lover out of jealousy because for the longest time, it was just the two of them living in the house. And then they had a very, you know, unhealthy relationship. Yeah. So then Norman, after she is dead, he ended up collecting her body, gently taxidermying it, and then he began to think and even speak for her because he missed her presence. He was used to having her around. So then he assumed that Mother was as jealous of him as he was of her. So he was jealous of this new lover, which is why he killed them, and then he assumed that it would be reciprocal and she would be jealous anytime he got aroused or turned on by anyone and mother would then kill the object of his sexual arousal yes and what what someone even brings up in this fucking scene mm -hmm. so you know they're like oh why was he dressed like that meaning why was he dressed like a woman right and one of them goes oh a transvestite and the mm -hmm. psychiatrist goes not exactly exactly a man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual charge or satisfaction is a transvestite but in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep the illusion of his mother being alive. Right. We should note that that is also actually incorrect. So uh, mm -hmm. we talked about this before, but transvestite is dismissed. And now we would say crossdresser. But even that, there doesn't need to be a sexual charge associated with it. And in fact, right. there's a number of heterosexual men who dress up in women's clothing. It's not always sexual and in this particular case the film is saying that's not why norman was doing it in our layman's terms nowadays we would say he split his personality in two which is very much a movie fabrication mm -hmm. uh, so essentially he just replicated mother because he missed her that was the thing and again if you're looking at this as based on the book that was based on ed gain's life that's what ed gain was trying to do with his mother that's why he does yes. But that's the thing, though, is like when this film is brought up in queer conversations. Yes. That's the issue. Because I'm like, this movie, even with its dated ideas of psychology, mm -hmm. it is making very clear Norman Bates is not a queer person. He is not a transgender person. He's not gay, blah, blah, blah. He has a split personality. Mm -hmm. And the legacy of this film is that people have conflated transgenderism with this Yes. Yeah. Now, I think we could still make readings mm -hmm. like, you know, we we've often talked about how just because we hear a doctor in a movie say it. Sure. I.e. in Silence of the Lambs does not dismiss a particular reading of the film. But yeah, I mean, I'll go into that a bit more in a second. But you're absolutely right. What ended up happening with this movie is that it was so popular the key takeaway that people had was the killer was Anthony Perkins, a man dressing up in women's clothing and killing people. And as a result, the thing to be scared of is men dressing up as women because they will kill you. And that's all you need, right? Obviously. It's just that simple, folks. <laughs> Fucking 
idiots. But I mean, the unfortunate thing is, as you said earlier, if this movie had not been popular, this maybe wouldn't have been its legacy in queer circles, right? It wouldn't have done irreparable damage to the queer community, specifically to the trans community. But unfortunately, because it was so well seen, it enters the cultural zeitgeist. And for a lot of folks, this is their only interaction or experience with a trans person. If you want to read it as such. Well, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, if you read it as trans, because I, for one, do not believe Norman Bates is trans. Norman Bates and Mother are two separate entities. Mm-hmm. So, can I bring back Columbo Machado, your favorite person from this episode? Yeah, let, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So, this is interesting. I, th- I think you might appreciate this one, even if you haven't loved all of her points this episode. So even if Norman is not a transvestite, according to the psychiatrist, he now only displays the personality of a woman. So in other words, by the end of the movie, Norman is identified as a male at birth with a female identified personality. Right. So Norman resists all labels by appearing as both Norman and mother. And at the end, we get that overlapped image. So, you know, the there's that very brief, very scintillating moment that apparently... Some people still continue to miss to this day, but as we transition from Norman sitting there talking about the fly in Mother's persona, Mm -hmm. and we move into the car being pulled out of the swamp, there's a very brief moment where uh, we can see her sort of skull overlaid over his face, suggesting that he is one and the same. Joe, I have never... I didn't notice this because I read it in a fucking article that I was reading to prepare for this. Mm-hmm. I noticed this on my rewatch, and I was like, how the fuck have I never noticed that before? Oh, <laughs> wow, that's exciting. That's no, fun. I, I'm saying that. And then, of course, I was reading all these things, and I was like, oh, wow, I feel really stupid for not having seen this <laughs> no. before. But, but I think the most interesting thing for me in this finale is Mother doesn't admit to these murders. No, she blames Norman. Yes. She says, how could anyone think that I, I'm paraphrasing? How could I think that I'm doing this? My son did this. And I'm like, but that's not what we've been told before this. Mm-hmm. So, again, what do you make of this? What do you walk away from this film thinking? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, to me, Mother is not a reliable figure. In some ways, we, we've we never known Mother. We can only know norman's idea of who mother is right and maybe this is that mom ism that we talked about earlier where it's like oh the way norman views his mother is as this punishing suffocating vilifying figure so of course she would never take responsibility for action she is committing she would blame her son yeah yeah and that's the thing is like i mean it's so interesting i feel like if this film was made today like it's like oh this is setting up for a bunch of sequels right? <laughs> <laughs> which of course was not a thing back in 1960 no no i, I mean again even in the legacy i mean in the early it was clearly influential in filmmaking but i and i guess in popularity but it was still a thing where but like this still wasn't viewed as like legitimate a high-class cinema for mm-hmm. a while in critical circles. No, schlocky bullshit. It was Hitchcock doing low-budget garbage that he was just trying to shock and titillate us. I don't know, man. But I just... I I think this is such a brazen, bold ending for this movie. And... Because I still walk away, like, not feeling 100% certain what I believe. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the most fascinating things about this film, and particularly this deep dive, like I haven't done this much research on a film in quite some time. I was going to say, yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) But it was really interesting just to have all of these different people pulling out a bunch of different readings because, as I said earlier, I think the movie really does invite it. I don't know that that was the intention. I imagine the creative team thought that this was a bit more cut and dry. You know, okay, we've given you the explanation. That's what that final scene is for. But at the end of the day, I think that there's a lot of wiggle room for the way that people want to read Norman, read Lila, dissect, you know, like how the film does what it does. Even the fact that it's such an unconventionally structured narrative. Like, technically, this film is a marvel. The performances are great. But I think the reason it has stood the test of time is because it was really experimental in the way it was putting all these things together. Like, if we made this movie again today, I don't think you'd get a studio that would finance it because they'd say, uh, what the fuck are we doing right now? No. I also think about the way that gender and sexuality has evolved Mm -hmm. since 1960 to now. And I think that it is also, uh, how how do I want to phrase this? Like, we're assuming that where we are now with our ideologies of gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. are the be all end all of what that is. Sure. And it is disregarding the fact that those things can still be evolving and might be completely different in 40 years. A hundred percent. I mean, this movie uses a term that we regard as more of a slur and an outdated practice Mm -hmm. now. But it's one of those things where if we use terms now, it's probably going to fall into that same camp in a decade, 20 years. Like things shift. And one of the reasons I enjoy doing this podcast with you (laughs) is because we have to try to put ourselves into the cultural context in which the film came out. Like, yeah, we're doing a lot of speculating about what 1960 audiences took away from this movie, because we don't 100% know we have some ideas based on documentaries and articles and that kind of stuff. But it's really interesting to watch how films evolve and take on different and new meanings over time. And I think Psycho was really new and exciting at the time yeah and i think now it's that weird classic that you can still get a lot of mileage out of like this rewards repeat viewings and and that's kind of my thing so going back even to the remake of it all i don't begrudge that remake for being what it is again it's an experiment Mm -hmm. but given the cultural impact that the original film had I would love to see a remake, a reimagining, whatever the fuck term you want to use, of this film that incorporates modern ideologies. And I think you would have to make a lot of changes, clearly. Uh But that to me is, again, if I'm saying a remake, that's kind of what I'm wanting from that. Like, take the original material, update it, but also, like, make it feel like it was made today. Like, don't hold... And that's the thing is, like, watching the the 1998 remake, you're kind of like, wow, this really feels like a movie that was shot in 1960. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not 1998, <laughs> in which, I think it, which I think is the film's failing. Yeah. So I don't know. I think you're not alone in that. I remember when that movie came out, because I went to see that motherfucker in theaters, A lot of folks said, you know, what was the point of this? Like, why would you bother to do this and only make the slightest of alterations to it? And, you know, Van Sant is very much on the record as saying, like, he wanted to do it because he wanted to see if he could replicate Hitchcock's mastery. And that makes sense to me. But at the same time, yeah, there's, I think, more potential to do something interesting 
Like if you're going to do a remake, then have something kind of fresh or new to say. So, Joe, Mm -hmm. we've mentioned that the budget for this film was a little bit over $800,000. Right. Which today would have been about $8.3 million. Still a little budget. Can you guess what the budget for Gus Van Sant's remake was? Oh my god. I'm going to say 32. Okay. So, just really quickly, uh, $807,000 in 1960 was about four and a half million dollars in 1998 oh okay the budget for gus van sant psycho was 60 million (laughs) dollars where did he spend all that money i don't know i think he must have paid the actors i guess it made 37 million dollars so it was it was a flop it was a bomb it was a bomb a bomb well because a the original movie is just better like Never mind the things that he doesn't update. It's like, okay, well, Hitchcock does it better, just flat out. But then also, why am I paying movie theater prices to go and see what you're telling me is just the exact same film that I probably already own on home video? That's the thing. And I went back and watched like, the, the marketing for the remake, I think, was fantastic. Like the, the poster okay. was. Oh, the posters were good. Yeah. Posters really good. The, the, the tagline check in, relax, take a shower. The, mm. the trailer was not really showing a lot of stuff, but it was very much like leaning on the shower scene right i don't know why this didn't do much better except for the fact that the reviews were like this is the same fucking movie but again yeah. i don't know how much 1998 audiences were really reading reviews or maybe as a marketing like maybe they didn't have it enough whatever it doesn't matter but <laughs> oh you, you have to remember we were actually reading reviews then because that was the only way to get a sense of apart from the studio marketing whether the movie was any good because you couldn't just go online and read about it that's true that's true <laughs> All this to say, this is a Stone Cold classic. I'm not unhappy that we waited to do this a little bit. Um, I don't know. This was an interesting conversation. I feel like we've come out of it with no more certainty of how we feel about what the film is doing, particularly with regards to queerness than before. Like, that almost makes me slightly uncomfortable. But hopefully we gave people fodder to have some interesting conversations. I'm in agreement. Um, and honestly, again, like the, the politics of it kind of removed from the situation. I was happy to revisit this. And oh, sure. again, like come out with like more of the human element of it. Like I I, mm-hmm. I appreciated both Janet Lee's and Anthony Perkins performances like more so than I have in any other watch of this film. Oh, God. Yeah. No, those two performances are off the hook. They are so fucking good. I'm I sound very stupid right now with my hyperbolic praise (laughs) they were off the hook man the performances were legitimately great i am very sad about also what happened to perkins career after this like i hate the fact that he got pigeonholed into horror and he didn't i don't know that he actually enjoyed it very much after or maybe he had Um, to come around to it over time but it is wild that he was basically a romantic leading man and then this movie came along (laughs) I will say this. He was asked, like, you know, given what happened to your career, would you still do Psycho? Mm -hmm. And he said emphatically, yes. And I think that shows in Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 and 4, you know, 2 was a risk and I think he's great in it. 3, he directs. Right. And that movie is wild. And you can chalk all this up to, well, I mean, he's an aging actor. He needs to do something. So why not dip back into the wall that made him famous? Sure. Sure. You can totally say that. Nevertheless, I don't get any. 
I don't want to be here from Anthony Perkins in any of those films. Yeah, no, you know what? That's fair. Yeah. And also, if nothing else, he got to fuck Tab Hunter. So he had good moments in his life. He would probably never admit that openly. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, go listen to our uh, whatever episode. Psycho 2, 3, whatever the fuck we talked about that on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right, everyone. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, just some quick housekeeping to get out of the way. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Or go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers. And tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, we are uh, getting towards the end of July, but if you sign up now, you will get up to 251 hours of extra content. This month, we're continuing our journey into the further with episodes on the whole Insidious franchise, plus Patrick Wilson's new sequel, The Red Door. We're also double dipping on Bird Box, talking about Bird Box Barcelona, and an audio commentary on the original Sandra Bullock film. And if you hate franchises and want more original horror, (laughs) we also have an episode on Marianne director Samuel Bowden's new film Cobweb, starring Lizzie Kaplan and Anthony Starr. Mm -hmm. Joe. Yes. What what are we talking about next week? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're going to close out July with something completely different. You know, a man dressing up in a woman's wig and dress should be a little campier. So why don't we dragify things a little bit? We're going to end July with All About Evil. Oh, boy. Joe, you haven't seen this, have you? I have not seen this, which is probably why that introduction doesn't sound anything like what the movie's about. (laughs) All I know is that Peaches Christ directed this, and it's got Natasha Lyonne in it. Yes. Uh, Also, Lynn Shea, by the way. Oh, fantastic. Continuing all of our franchise talk about the Insidious franchise. Also, Thomas Decker (laughs) and like about a bunch of other famous people. Um, Yeah, everyone, this is, yeah, Peaches Christ, a camp classic I have seen this once, and I will tell you that I walked away loving it after a first watch, but it is campy, stupid, low-budget, offensive, ridiculous. Oh, it's all the things you like, then. It is a very mean movie, and I'm very curious to see what you think about this, Joe. Wait, it's a mean movie? Really? Me. It's a me movie. Oh, you movie. Oh, okay. I was like, I would not have expected this movie to be mean. Okay, it's a you movie. And it's a me movie. But I you will know what? adjust my expectations accordingly. I hope it becomes an us movie. Oh. You yeah. know what? If it's anything like a Tammy and the T Rex situation, then <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to it. All right, everyone. Well, until next week, we can cross out once and for all Psycho. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Thank you.